everyone, welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And today we're taking a little detour on Staff Picks. We're doing the type of movie I don't normally do. Uh, if you know this show, you knew I do a lot of horror movies. I like suspense movies. I like comedies. I like crazy documentaries. But today we're actually talking about a really gripping, deep drama that is an outstanding movie and actually has a lot to say. And that is the 2008 Clint Eastwood movie, Gran Torino, which I can already tell you going into this podcast is one of the most difficult movies I have ever had on staff picks to try to talk about because there is an insane amount of discourse out there on the Internet about this movie. And I will say right off the bat, I think most of it is stupid and annoying. So I just want to get a podcast out there where someone actually knows what they're talking about when they talk about this movie. Again, not to sound conceited, but I cannot tell you how much I hate reading reviews of Gran Torino because this is such a great movie. This is absolutely one of the greatest movies I own in my collection, but the reviews of it are all over the place, and I think for the wrong reason. So that's one of the things I want to bring up here. Uh, my guest on this episode, he has been on before. I had him on a couple years ago for a little horror movie called Trick or Treat. And uh, that was a fun episode. And I wanted to bring him back for something else. And he and I had talked about Gran Torino for a while. Just how it's one of these great movies that nobody really ever seems to give enough praise. Like it's, it's, it was a big deal for a while. And then it kind of dropped off the face of the earth. And there's some controversies. We'll talk about why that happened. But anyway, uh, big movie enthusiast, guy I've known for years, Ivy League student, smart guy. I just like talking movies with him. Uh, welcome back to the show, Jack Morosis. Thank you, Mario. Happy to be here. Happy to be back. And I'm so excited because I think I got your pronunciation right on the first try. You did. That's uh, an impressive feat. <laughs> so, Jack, welcome back to the show. Uh, kind of tell people a little bit about you and why you like this movie and were a good pick to be on this episode with me. Well, uh, I'm a normal guy who just enjoys movies and television and uh, doesn't get the chance to talk about it as much as he wants to. Um, I have kind of a weird uh, relationship with a lot of movies in that I have – there's a lot of movies out there that I really should have seen but I haven't seen. And uh, I'm going to be upfront. This is actually the only Clint Eastwood movie I've ever seen. Um, so I don't have – I, I know who he is, obviously. Uh, I'm aware of his stature within cinema, but um, you know, when, in terms of his filmography, this is you know the only familiarity I have. So, yeah, I was gonna make a joke about you being younger than me. How old are you? Because I'm 47. You're nowhere near my age, right? Yeah, I'm I'm 26. Okay, I was gonna tease you for not being familiar with the works of Clint Eastwood, but here's a little secret. I'm 47, and I've never seen most of his movies either. <laughs> yeah, I mean. I think we should probably both add them to our list because, you know, they're kind of absolute classics and he's a legend that will live forever. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll definitely get around to them sometime. But for now, this is this is, you know, just wanted to get that context out there that uh, this is the only Clint Eastwood movie I've seen. Uh, but I'm definitely a big fan of it. OK, yeah, because that's so we're kind of on the same page and I'll flat out tell people I don't really like Westerns. I have no interest in these 60s Westerns or 70s ones. So I vaguely know his movies. But again, I know his image. I know his career. I know his legacy. I just have never especially seen the movies. And then he did like uh, a lot of action stuff, Dirty Harry in the 70s, which I've seen 
for the most part, a couple Dirty Harry movies. I know, again, I know his persona, but I am much more familiar with 90s Clint Eastwood and 2000s when he's just old gruff guy, becomes a legendary filmmaker. So that's, I'm much more familiar with the later era. This is my personal favorite Clint Eastwood movie, but I have seen a couple others. So there are some others I recommend to you, perhaps off the air, but this, I think, is his pinnacle, to, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean that's 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 really great. And you know, for for a bit of context, I am old enough to remember his uh excursion at the uh RNC back in 2011 or 2012 when he uh was talking to a chair. Um so I I'm not sure. I wonder what he's like now. He's I mean in his late 80s or or 90s at this point, but uh uh it, it is also worth mentioning what a different world um we live in today and uh versus 2008 and the the difference in kind of context that that this movie has um, now versus 13 years ago. <laughs> yeah, I like yeah, I like how you said you wonder what he's doing now. Let's let's point out he was talking to a chair in 2011, and now he's 10 years older. So I'm guessing he's still talking to a chair. Yeah, so so yeah, Clint Eastwood, legendary film director, one of these national treasures. Everyone loves working with this guy. His movies are notorious. I don't know if you know this, Jack, for they always come in like on time and under budget. He's so efficient and people love working with him. And he kind of had this, you know, last part of his career in the 90s and 2000s where he's this a great director. And uh, OK, I guess we should actually stop beating around the bush and get into this movie in particular. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> so. Uh, I want to start right off the bat. That sentence I said at the start of the podcast that I have never seen a movie with more annoying reviews about it. Have you read up on Gran Torino and seen some of the takes on this movie? Yeah, so I, I have read a little bit about this movie. I wanted to just kind of touch up a little bit on the history because I knew there was controversy surrounding it. I tried not to read too many reviews um, just to as to not taint my own opinion, but um, I'm definitely aware of the controversy surrounding it um for for better or for worse okay well let's uh sum up the movie for people who may not have seen it or may not have seen it for a while it's basically the story of this old racist gruff ex-korean vet korean war veteran clint eastwood plays a guy named walt who just is a bitter racist asshole just one of the worst people ever and he gets embroiled with uh first a controversy but then a relationship with his uh, asian neighbors the mongs and uh he learns to accept them they learn to accept him and it ends in a kind of an interesting father-son relationship between him and this and the kid next door but this movie ends and i hate to spoil this already off the bat hopefully you've seen this movie or, or, or this won't ruin it for you, ends in a really, really sad, tragic ending that's very poignant, and it really actually makes me tear up. And like I said, the controversy will come in with this movie that our hero is a huge racist asshole. And so this is where you get a lot of the discourse if it's responsible to have a type of movie like that with that kind of a hero. And that's where a lot of the, I think, controversy comes in. Would you agree? Yeah, I would. I mean, he is literally the definition like a walking caricature of the old crotchety racist get off my lawn grandpa um but you know i I think it's worth mentioning that you know yeah he sucks his character sucks in the movie but so does pretty much everyone else in the movie for for one reason or another minus a few a few characters but um it's a movie about flawed people and i think that's um 
you know, if if you want to make an interesting movie, it needs to be about flawed people and and the growth that they experience. So um, I think that's you know a key part of it. Yeah, and a hundred percent I agree with that. And that the theme of this movie is really, and this is what I think people miss. That's why I really wanted to do an episode on Gran Torino because the theme of this movie is about peace, finding peace through atoning for your past, atoning for your sins of the past, you know, making up with the evils you've done and you behind you in the world and finding peace. And it's not just Walt. That's Clint Eastwood's character. He's not the only one that finds peace in this movie. Other people do too, but Oh my God, some of the reviews. And again, I'm going to get back to this again. Let me bring this up, Jack. So I've seen this movie described as a huge MAGA advertisement. It's a movie that will only only uh, appeal to these old racist assholes. I've heard some people describe it as that. I don't think that is a fair representation of this movie at all. I have seen it described as liberal propaganda. It's this most left-wing movie ever that says that everyone has to get along and everyone has to find common ground. And it's like this big whitewashing of actual human relations, which I don't think that's accurate either. I have seen it described as a white savior movie where the white man comes in and solves everyone else's problems, which I could not think is further from the truth if you actually pay attention to this movie. So that's what I mean when I say I read these discourses. I'm like, God, these are annoying because these just basically miss the entire point of this movie. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think it, you know, whatever meaning it had back in 2008, I don't think that changes in the in the current environment that we live in that's politically charged and uh, very much obsessed with race as a as a social question. So, um you know, I think this kind of it gets to the movie speaks to finding peace, but it also speaks to growth. I think those two kind of uh, in tandem growing towards peace, I might say. Um, so it's important to have those flaws and to see people that are bad people. I mean, objectively, um, to see them grow and to change and to and to reach that peace. Yeah, and what I like in particular about this, like kind of like what you were hinting at, is that even though Clint Eastwood's character is objectively just a horrible person, as the movie goes along, you see why he has become this horrible person. You can actually get this. And this is a very important thing about this movie that I wanted to point out is that, you know, the argument, you, it's not morally responsible to have a movie with this as your lead character. See, I disagree with that because there are lots of people like this in the world, and you can't say they're off limits as a main character. I mean, you'd agree with that, right? Yeah, I agree. I mean, you lose the entire purpose of the movie if this guy isn't an asshole. So it's, yeah, I mean, just plain and simple. Yeah, salvation, grace, peace. There's a lot. There's a lot to unpack in this movie. And I said, I, like I said earlier, there are very few movies that move me as much as this one. Like, I watched this one. This is so powerful. And I always remembered it sticks in my head. Now, I know you said you hadn't seen it in like 13 years. You just watched it for the first time recently. Did you find it really powerful on your last rewatch? I had seen it a few times in between, but yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly powerful movie. It really, um, you know, especially getting to see it now when I'm more mature than I had um, had that I was when I had seen it previously. But uh, th there is a lot to unpack. There's a lot. You know, I think it does have a message to everyone that everyone can improve or everyone can grow and become a better person. So, yeah, or everyone's just interrelated in a community. Everyone is interrelated somehow, whether they like it or not. Yeah. And everyone sucks in their own special <laughs> way. Yeah. Although there's one. OK, there's one other thing before we get into the plot of this movie is that 
we both mentioned before, Jack and I are not both big Clint Eastwood fans. We don't know his entire, you know, over of films, but we know his image. He's the toughest guy of all time. And that's one thing I want to point out about this movie, another movie he did, Unforgiven, or a little before this. Like, this is kind of what Clint Eastwood does in his later movies in life. He makes fun of his image as Dirty Harry. And that's the thing I think a lot of people miss about this movie, that the whole point of this movie is that violence is not the answer, and the tough guy is just going to fuck it up for everybody. And that's one thing I really wanted to point out. Now, you said when you were watching this movie, you were kind of surprised how funny it actually was at times. Yeah, there's a number of like really laugh out loud moments in the movie. Some I think unintentional, but many I, I think were probably intentional. Yeah, and and that but that's the thing. A lot of people went into this movie thinking this would be a dirty hairy movie that Clint Eastwood squares off against these Asian gang punks, and he he's Mr. Clint Eastwood, Mr. Dirty Harry, pulls out the gun, get off my lawn, and blows them all away. And that's not this movie at all. That's like the opposite of this movie. Yeah, and in fact, it's really about, you know, throughout the course of the movie, he, he's very much like breaking down. Like he's an old man. He's, you know, we'll get to that uh, later, but he he's dying throughout the movie. I mean, it's clear that he um, got a cancer diagnosis. We learn about, you know, halfway to two-thirds of the way through, um, and he's, you know, slowly dying over the course of the movie. Um, early on when he does try and defend uh, his garage from, being broken into in his car from being stolen uh you know they physically best him pretty pretty easily and knock him onto the ground um and and get away so you know he's really he puts up the tough guy image but uh, he's just there you know pointing a gun at people there's not much other than that there's not much to back it up yeah he's just pathetic in fact i read a thing or a review the other day that a little trivia fact that said you know for all the glorification of violence and gunplay and stuff in this movie Clint Eastwood only fires a gun one time the entire movie, and that's when he trips in his garage and it accidentally goes off. So, like, he's not even intending to shoot a gun. Yeah, and one thing I think worth noting about the guns, there's a few there's a few sight gags with them that I, I find funny when uh, the two gangs are facing off. One of them points a, a little revolver out the window. The other gang pulls out a much bigger Uzi and points it at them, and then the, the two cars run away. But um, Clint Eastwood or, or Walt Kowalski in the movie, he uses a you – know, he's got an M1 Garand rifle, and he's got a 1911 pistol, which um, are – both pretty much the most quintessential American weapons that you know you could possibly imagine service rifles and and service weapons in World War II and Korea. Um, I mean, if you if you know anyone in the gun community, these are like the most they're like stereotypical like American weapons. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here we go. We're gonna delve into Gran Torino, one of the most politically charged movies I could possibly do on staff picks, and the goal here is to really not make this a political podcast. Now, I'm hoping I'm one of the best people for that because I'm about as anti-political as they come. I just kind of sit and make fun of everything. So I like to think I can kind of sit back and just view things fairly. But Jack, I know you're a little more political than I am. So do you, would you, are you going to find it hard to get through this movie without discussing it in political terms? I'm, quite, I'm curious about that. It's it's very hard to ignore, um, especially you know as I've mentioned before in in today's day and age. Uh, but you know beyond that, I still think there's a there's so much anyone can get out of it. Yeah, I, I, again, I highly recommend this movie to anybody. Like there's some themes you might not enjoy, but at its heart, this is about as sweet and sensitive a movie as I have seen in many years. So that's my recommendation. And with that, do you think we're ready to uh, delve into this, Jack?
let's get to it. Yeah, so here we go. Here's a movie that uh, there has never been a better use of the Clint Eastwood snarl and the Clint Eastwood raspy voice than this movie, which is uh, very sneaky funny at times. Okay, but here we go. So the movie starts, and again, our hero is uh, Walt Kowalski, an old Korean war vet living in Detroit in 2008. This is Clint Eastwood at his old and most grizzled. And the whole movie, it starts with a funeral, right? Yeah, and and it's really hard to understate just how much of a character the caricature this guy is. Um, just like the quintessential old American, uh, you know, old man on the porch, get off my lawn. But uh, it starts with the funeral. Um, his wife, we learn basically instantly, has just died. And uh, the most important part of the scene is his family when they walk in. <laughs> yeah, okay, so let's talk about this. So, yeah, Clint Eastwood is the prototypical grumpy old man. In fact, I, I read a review by Roger Ebert where he said, Clint Eastwood's face in this movie is like a thing of art. Like, because he's not just old and wrinkly and grizzled now. Like, by 2008, Clint Eastwood's face looked like a piece of wood. That's what Roger Ebert said. <laughs> So he just has a permanent snarl on his face. And we see at the start, his wife has just died, his wife of like 50 years. So now he's an old man, he's all by himself at home. And his family is walking into the funeral at church. And his grandkids have like bear midriff, his granddaughter. And his grandson is in a football jersey. And one of them makes a joke about, uh, what is it, wallet, testicles, spectacles. I forget what he's crossing himself. So right off the bat, the first thing you see is Clint Eastwood snarling cause how he, at how much he hates his grandkids. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I mentioned earlier. Everyone else in this movie, not just him, but really everyone in this movie sucks in their own way. Uh, so, you know, he has a right to be mad at his grandchildren because, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, you don't wear a football jersey to your grandmother's funeral. You don't wear, like, um, excuse me, but skanky clothes to, to a funeral. I mean, that's just uh, ridiculous. Uh, and they, they're showing pretty blatant disrespect to the death of their grandmother so i mean he's fully warranted in being mad at his family in this in this scene and in subsequent scenes as well yeah and there's a lot of times in this movie when walt is correct he's 100 percent correct in what he's saying now his messaging might not be the best way to do it but you can understand why he's pissed at the world and that's kind of again why the controversy in this movie pops in like are you really supposed to like humanize and empathize with this guy? But I get it. He he does not like his family. We learn we learn that over and over throughout this movie. He hates his kids. He hates his grandkids. They hate him. Walt has nobody in the world after his wife died, really. Yeah, it's 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 you really get hit with the sadness early on. I mean, you it's it's anger and and just general pissed off nature, but it's also sad. It is. It is a very sad movie. There's a lot of really stark honest sadness in this movie which is, is kind of striking i think that's what softens it a little bit because you you sympathize with walt's life to really realize how lonely and sad and just unhappy this guy has been for years and now you know his wife died so you know he's not going to last much longer his his time is is short yeah absolutely okay yeah and so we learn yeah, the, the Walt's kids are like, you know, the old man never never evolved past 1950s. He still lives back in the Korean War mindset. He just, you know, everyone, he's got a racial slur for everybody. He hates all, hates all minorities. He doesn't like that all these Asians are moving into his neighborhood. And we're going to learn this throughout this movie that 
that as Walt is trying to cling to his life from the 50s, his area is slowly being taken over by all these Hmong, H-M-O-N-G, I think I'm pronouncing it right, Hmong refugees that have moved into the area. And he's like the only white guy left in the neighborhood, and he hates this. No, Mario, it's pronounced Hmong. <laughs> Please. I worked all day to make sure I got that pronunciation correct. <laughs> I believe it's Hmong, right? The H is silent. Yes, it is. It is Hmong. All right. Yes. Don't turn me into Clint here. <laughs> no intention. Okay. Yeah, so uh, well, what else did we get at the start? The funeral and all the families there, and then they come back to his house for a potluck, and he just hates it because, like, his grandkids are getting in his stuff. His parents or his kids are trying to mooch off his stuff, trying to ask when he's going to move out and sell the house. And at one point, his granddaughter, who he hates the most, is, like, mooching and trying to get his prized possession, his, his uh, grand Torino. Yeah, she, she, I mean, she straight up asks him, can I have the car when you die? After he catches her smoking a cigarette in, in, in his garage, uh, she's probably like 16 or so, so big no-no. But, I mean, she just sucks. She sucks. His, his grandkids suck. Um, you don't see it a ton in this in this early scene, but his kids suck too. Oh, yeah, you can see it. That's the thing. His kids are terrible. Now, it might be his fault his i mean he he might be the reason they're terrible but there is no relationship he has no relationship with anybody he is just a man of hate and anger he hates everything except this dog and uh but yeah i mean it's right it's 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 true all he does pretty much is um you know sit on the porch and drink beer smoke cigarettes that's pretty much i mean the, mo the movie shows you that's pretty much all he does especially after his wife dies yeah, well, okay, what's interesting about this movie is that there are very few characters in the movie. Like, I always think it's a really deep movie and there's a lot to unpack, and I have, like, 20 pages of notes to talk about, but there's only, like, six characters in the movie. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, that it definitely does a good job of keeping it intimate, uh, getting to know everyone, and really focusing on the, the people that matter and showing the growth in them. Okay, so here we go. We have Walt, who lives there, the only white guy left in an all-Asian neighborhood, just a bitter old Korean War vet who, admittedly, probably as most Korean War vets from that era would have, might have an issue with Asians. Just wanted to throw that out there. So, But here we go to the more humanizing side of the movie, his neighbors, the Mungs. So let's talk about this family next door a little bit. Yeah, they're, uh, you know, interesting. It's, it's you know, not everyone lives next to people who are uh, living out a different culture. Um, so, you know, even even normal people who aren't old crotchety racists don't typically live next to people who are slaughtering chickens in the back backyard and, um, you know, very, very obviously displaying their traditional customs. Uh, so uh, it's probably especially pronounced that they're living next to him. Uh, but, you know, we... Early on, we're, we're kind of introduced to them as just those, you know, the outsider neighbors. But um, some of them kind of take a liking to them. Some of them don't. Uh, the grandmother in particular, uh, it's shown that they have a little bit of a rivalry. Um, and, and this is where I get to – one of the interesting things I noticed is that uh, many he, – he might not actually be the most conservative person in the movie. Um, the, the grandmother especially, she – uh, makes a subtitled comment about why why won't this why hasn't this white guy moved out yet like geez like as if she's she's as if he's the outsider in his own neighborhood which 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 he is but uh, you know they kind of want him out which is uh, kind of turns the tables there yeah there's some real I'm really glad you brought that up because there's some really poignant quotes in this movie that I I hadn't even thought of until you just mentioned that that you know Walt is the walking epitome of a conservative old crotchety American. 
but he is not the most conservative at all. In fact, at one point later in the movie, the, the Asian girl next door, Sue, says, oh, you, you wouldn't have wanted to be raised in my family, Walt. My dad was really conservative, like Asian conservative. And Walt's like, what, you don't think I'm conservative? And she's like, yeah, but you're American. It's different. So she's already flat out saying Americans can't possibly be as conservative as the Asians. So Walt's world will get turned around a couple times in this movie. Yeah, I caught that as well. It's a, it's a really important point to bring up. Um, you know, it's 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 kind of, it's it's very subtle, but you do realize that he is kind of coming into contact with the culture that's actually more conservative than his in in many ways. Um, and that I don't know if he necessarily recognizes that in the movie, but it definitely plays a role. Yeah, and not only are they more conservative, they are now the dominant force in the neighborhood. He is the minority, so he has no chance to be conservative anymore because he no longer belongs here, and that's that will be a big part of his problem, and that's just the reality. It, in fact, that reminds me of something. I remember this in college. My best, one of my best friends in college was a guy named Ryan, and Ryan was from Japan, first first generation Japanese American. His dad was straight out of Japan, so he was raised in a really really strict Japanese environment, and I remember. One day we were talking in college, as you do, you know, subjects come up about things like racism. And he said, he goes, you know what makes me laugh when I'm in America is that everybody thinks white people are the most racist. And he's like, you have not met racism until you've met Japanese racists. That's what he told me. He's like, I swear to God, I'll take you to Japantown right now. And there's signs that flat out in Japantown say, be careful, there's black people nearby, you know what that means. Like, straight out in Japanese. He's like, you have not, like, you Americans don't even have the market on a conservative value. So I always think about, about that when I'm watching this movie. Yeah, I can corroborate that. A good friend of mine lived in Japan, uh, you know, spoke fluently, was teaching English there, um, was about as culturally competent as, as an American can, can get over there. But he was routinely turned away from restaurants for, for being a white guy, which is kind of crazy to think about. But, uh, you know, I, I think that is worth worth bringing up that, um, you know, American conservatism is one thing, but, you know, other cultures can, can be conservative, too. Oh, yeah. Everybody. I mean, someone's going to be the low man on the totem pole somewhere. That's the thing. There's always a popular group and an unpopular group. So that's what the people who really, in my opinion, lead interesting lives and have rich tales and stuff have lived in both scenarios where they're the majority in one time in their life and they're the minority in another time. And I find that they have really interesting stories to tell. So that's why I like movies like this, because you're going to see it from both sides. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's talk about this Hmong family next door. Now, I forgot their – they say the last name, but I kind of forget. I just call them the, the Asian family next door. But the dynamic next door is interesting because it's all women. And we're kind of going to learn about this throughout the movie, the Hmong culture. Oh, I guess I should mention this, that this movie was one of very, very first American productions to really delve into Hmong culture, which is not something most Americans know about. Now, had you ever heard of it outside of this movie? No, no, I hadn't, and, and since I saw the movie, I'm, I'm not sure if I've heard of it more than a handful of times, uh, but uh, I would imagine that's true for most Americans, if, if they're being honest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whether you admit it or not. Now, this movie will educate you as well as entertain. We're going to learn from this movie, this Hmong community is basically Asians from like Laos, uh, China, Singapore? I don't know. I wrote down my notes later. They're the ones that fought with the U.S. in the Vietnam War against the North Vietnamese. After the U.S. pulled out in 72 or 74 or whatever, the North Vietnamese came in and started, you know, shooting the traitors and arresting the traitors. And so these poor Asians that fought with the Americans had nowhere to go. So they were sitting ducks. They had no country. 
and they were brought over to the U.S. by the Lutherans. They ended up in the Detroit, Minnesota area. And so apparently this is a big part of the culture there in that area of the country, all these refugees that came over in the 70s. But the thing is, these are there's a, a mostly fatherless community, according to the movie, that most of the girls succeed in the U.S., most of the boys don't, the fathers don't succeed, there's a lot of broken families. So the dynamic in this movie is Clint Eastwood is a father without a family, without sons that he respects. Next door we have this boy, Tao, that has never been raised with a father. So that's where we're going to go with this movie. Yeah, I think uh, Sue, the the older sister in the family next door, she brings up one point that uh, in in the American Hmong community, the girls go to college and the boys go to jail, and we kind of, I mean, that's pretty much what we see play out within the movie. And Tao is kind of Tao, the the younger brother next door, is uh, kind of the the uh, the outlier in that respect, in that he's you know an outsider in the gangs and uh, is doesn't really have much direction but he's not necessarily you know on a prison pipeline yeah he's just a lonely kid who doesn't have a dad around he uh his sister and mom yell at him he does whatever they say which is kind of not respected in this culture where the women just yell and the boy does whatever they say and so they don't respect him Tao doesn't get any respect from anybody because he's kind of spineless and this will end up in an interesting father figure relationship with Walt next door that he will begrudgingly become a father to town. That's what makes this movie kind of sweet. It does. And because, you know, and part of it is that you just see two people who really have no business interacting, interacting and it, you know, ends it ends up somewhere unexpected. Yeah. Okay. Now I want to talk about the Hmong controversy in this because that is something that has kind of dogged this movie ever since it has come out. Have have you read up on that a little bit? I did read up a little bit on it, and it was, you know, I'm, I'm on one hand I'm surprised by it, on the other hand I'm not. Uh, but I'll let you take the reins on this since you're probably a bit more informed than I am. Oh yeah, this fits right into my all the discourse on this movie is annoying. Okay, so the premise of this movie is there's this guy who grew up in Minnesota. He knew about the Hmong community. He had a lot of friends in the community. He understood the culture, tradition. He wrote this movie as basically a way of introducing America to the Hmong culture, which he was very familiar with because he was kind of ensconced in it with all his friends. So they did a really bang-up job, I would say. They really went out and recruited as many Hmong actors and non-actors as they could for this movie because they really wanted to have them represented on film. There'd never really been any representation. So almost everybody in this movie is pulled from, like, casting calls or they pulled them out of soccer tournaments. There's a lot of non-actors in this movie acting for the first time. And that's an interesting point because I think it is... It's interesting because you can kind of tell that a lot of the... You know who's an amateur actor and who's a professional actor, uh, or who's a, a more esteemed actor than than others. Since I do think a lot of the, I, I'm not sure if it's that the acting is stiff or if there is, you know, because they did draw the talent pool from a lot of like uh, I believe local Hmong uh, acting communities. That um, if it's stiff acting or if it's you know a bit of a language barrier um but i think the stiff acting from from some of the actors does come across as as um it, it works in their favor in in acting because it kind of solidifies them or or portrays them as slightly slightly more foreign i guess if that's mm -hmm. um if that makes sense 
It's, yeah, it's interesting. I've read a lot of reviews where people criticized among actors. Like, people say, I see, oh, Clint Eastwood's great, the girl Sue is great, but everyone else is terrible, and you can tell they're not actors. Now, I don't get that when I watch this movie, and I don't know why people harp on that, because that is not what jumps out at me when I watch this movie. I think the kids are all fine. They look like kids that are struggling with American culture and American language, and I can see why they would be stilted. It's like, that doesn't bother me. I'm always surprised people harp on that so much. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that, you know, if whether or not that was intentional or not, I think it works in, in the favor, in, in in the movie's favor in terms of portraying them as, uh, you know, effectively as the immigrants that they are. Yeah. And now we get back to the part where I say the discourse behind this film always annoys me because the whole point of this movie was a guy wrote it because he wanted to introduce Hmong culture into American society. He wanted you to empathize with him, understand why they were here, why they were forced to come to America. It's a really comes from a very sensitive spot. And then I read afterwards, there was so much controversy, people saying, oh, they don't like the Hmong stereotypes in this movie. They don't like it the way it's presented. They think it's, you know, culturally insensitive. And my argument is, but the whole point of this movie was to be culturally sensitive. So, like, you might nitpick some of the little things they might put in the movie for storytelling purposes, but it comes from a place of a big heart. Like, this was a good-hearted movie. So I'm always surprised when I read about the controversy, including some of the actors. I've actually, I think it was the boy, uh, Tao, complained that the Hmong actors weren't treated well. There was misrepresentation. Like, it was a bad experience. And, like... I find it odd that this is the movie that really takes the hit for being controversial because it was in intentionally designed not to be. Yeah, and, you know, I, I don't want to pull this card, but I, I've never seen another Hmong-oriented movie uh, in mainstream culture. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, there's there's inevitably inaccuracies in every movie, um, critically acclaimed or not. I mean, Gladiator is, you know, famously controversial in that respect. Titanic as well. Um, so... You know, it's it's never going to be perfect, and um, I, I I did read a little bit about his claims, and it's I found it interesting that those I believe they were made only last year, mm -hmm. uh, or his his major comments were only made last year, um, and and there's been no other allegations of mistreatment of actors um, that that I um, that I had heard of, so I I'm not sure that was a little strange to read about, um, but um, you know I think it's generally. I think it's generally, you know, in terms of respect for a culture, I mean, you, you learn quite a bit about Hmong culture in it, um, assuming that, you know, what you do, do learn is accurate. I think that's it's all very positive. Um, so I, I, I agree that those those statements don't generally make a lot of sense, and, and I would not agree with them. Yeah, and again, I'm not Hmong. I don't come from that community, so I can't really speak for them. I'm also not a bitter old 80-year-old Korean War vet white guy. I can't really speak to Walt's character. Everything in this movie reads true enough to me that I, it feels like this is how it would play out in real life, and that's really all I can go by. But I will share one comment that I read that there's one Hmong director out there who's been trying to make his name. I forgot his name, but he flat out said that he didn't like the controversy over this movie because he's like, you know, fuck it. How many Hmong movies are there, like you just said? He's like, get our foot in the door in the filmmaking community, then we can fine-tune the perception later. So he was he was thrilled with this movie. He's like, they made a movie about us. I can't believe it. So that's what I think is the bigger picture, really. Yeah, I agree. It's I think it's a similar situation. I think um, the famous musical, uh, The Book of Mormon, also faced similar um similar backlash controversy response from from mormons i mean they were mostly happy that it got people talking about them yeah that's the thing i mean 
in the movie, the Mungs are presented very sympathetically. And after the movie, I'm like, I would like to know these families. I would like to go to that barbecue. That looks delicious. So, I mean, what else do you really want from a movie that's trying to introduce a new culture to a, to cinema, honestly? Yeah, agreed. And yeah, I agree that that food looked fantastic. And <laughs> Walt, I think, uh, agrees as well. Okay, so let's get back to the storyline again. This We're going to kind of skim through the storyline because it's a very simple story, but there's the themes are more interesting than the story, I think. Okay, so let's talk about one of the, the other big characters in this movie, the priest. There's a uh, very interesting dynamic in this movie that when Walt's wife died, she was very Catholic. He was not. He just went to church to please her, as many guys do. <laughs> and when she died, she left in her will. She said, I would like my husband Walt to start going to confession. So the priest from the church comes out and takes Walt under his wing and says, I'm going to make you Catholic. You're going to start going to confession. And naturally, Walt does not like this, does he? He does not one bit, um, and he's very upfront about it with the priest in a, a way that you know you'd think a, a, an old conservative guy like that would at least be respectful to the priest. But no, he he really gives it to the guy. I mean, he's very disrespectful and rude to his face, uh, which is you know interesting. But uh, and, and that's kind of important because we also track the growth of the priest as a character throughout the movie. Um, but yeah, uh, there's they have an interesting relationship. That's for sure. That's a very good point about the priest growing in the movie as well, because I have that in my notes. Like, I forget that he has a story arc, too. Okay, let's talk about this priest. So it's probably not so much that Walt is not Catholic and the priest is, and Walt hates that. Because Walt seems to have a begrudging respect for religion, at least to some extent. Like you saw at the church, he didn't like people disrespecting the church. Walt's issue is, as always, a culture clash, a, uh, a generation gap. The, the problem lies that Walt is about 80 and the priest is about 27 and there's no way Walt is going to respect a priest who's 50 years younger than him. Yeah, it just, it just doesn't work. And again, he's, he's very upfront with it, but uh, you know, there's there, they have some really good conversations throughout the movie. And I think the most striking one to me is uh, he accuses the priest of, you know, I, I think the line is like holding the hands of old superstitious ladies and, uh, you know comforting them in the face of death and uh you know he, he criti criticizes the priest for not knowing anything about death whereas he himself is intimately familiar with it yeah that's a very deep theme in this movie that walt has been through the korean war he has killed people we will learn about this later it haunts his soul that he killed people he has this st this stink of death around him his entire life he has never made peace with the fact that he killed these kids in korea and this priest is walking around saying, oh, come confess your sins. I know about life and death. And Walt's like, you don't know crap, Junior. You're 27, 27-year-old 27 virgin. Piss off. So he does not respect this priest at all. But as the movie goes along, they will actually learn to understand each other a little bit, which is actually really sweet. All right. And with that, now let's get into the crux of the movie. So Walt is this lonely widower living at home, drinking his beer, just spouting his BS about how all the... I hate to quote it, but I got to quote Clint Eastwood. All the chinks and the gooks are moving in, and this used to be a white neighborhood. He's so angry. He hates his neighbors. He thinks they're savages. And this is where the movie's going to start to spiral into a uh, storyline because next door, Tao, this little monk kid, weak little spineless Asian kid, is being recruited by the local gangs. And that is the big storyline in this movie that all these fatherless, immigrants moved into this area and all the boys have no direction in life they have turned to crime so 
this area is crawling with gangs. There's white gang or there Mexican gangs, black gangs, Hmong gangs. And the Hmong gang is really trying to recruit Tao. And this is going to become the huge storyline in this movie. Careful there, Mario. You're going to get yourself canceled. Wait, what, for what? Which one did I say? <laughs> uh, but no, it's 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 interesting to kind of see this. And, you know, I don't know very much about gang culture and everything. So I'm going to give the movie the benefit of the doubt and assume that they're portraying it accurately. Uh, on, on the one hand, you, you kind of question why they would want Tao in their gang. I mean, he's... He's, you know, younger, smaller than them. Uh, it doesn't seem like he's very effective at doing anything. Um, his initiation is to, uh, well, we'll get to this, but his initiation is to steal a car, and uh, he, you know, fails very, uh, very uh, epically at that. Uh, but he's, you know, he's he's ridiculed for doing women's work uh, the not just by the gang members but by his his family members and other members of the community so uh it's a weird dynamic yeah okay well i do want to say just sociologically because I've, I've studied stuff like this in schools about gangs and how gangs start so in this movie i think it presents it very realistically is that tao the little asian kid is walking down the street and this mexican gang drives up and they start harassing him like what are you doing in our neighborhood get out of here we're gonna fuck you up and the Asian gang, who is made up of Tao's cousin, sees that. They come over, they drive the Mexican gang off, and they're like, look, we're here to protect you. That's what we're... So gangs generally start from a reason, they, to protect their own. And so that's why the gang starts to want to protect Tao. Tao turns them down. He's like, no, even though you're my cousin, I don't want to join your dumb gang. And then they think, oh, you're too good for us. So the gang will target Tao from here on out because they think he has disrespected them. That's the problem. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, even though Tao doesn't want to join the gang, Tao's sister Sue says, stay away from my brother. You know, he's a good kid. He doesn't want to be in your gang. But this is going to be the draw throughout the whole movie. Tao has no male role models in his life. Most of his friends and peers are gangbangers headed for jail one day. It's inevitable he's going to end up there too. And everyone's doing their best to hold it off as long as they can. And Walt will eventually get drawn into this. Okay, so let's get to the uh, initiation. So the gang eventually convinces Tao that he needs their protection. You need the Asian gang to help you in this neighborhood to be safe. And so Tao's like, fine, I'll do it. What do I need to do? And they're like, we got a great initiation for you. Break into that racist old fucker's house next door and steal his really cool car. He's got this grand Torino in the garage. Steal that car and you're in the gang. So this is how Walt's world and Tao's world will be thrown together. Yeah, and it's uh, you know, you you almost see it coming because the, uh, I mean, obviously the title of the movie, but uh, uh, it's uh, it's an important part just because this is the the first real collision and interaction between the two. Yeah, so they uh, convince Tao to break into Walt's garage and steal his car, and I'll give you the description on this one because let's just say it doesn't go well. It does not. Tao, as I kind of touched on, he's he's not really good at anything other than, um, you know, gardening, I guess they mentioned. But, uh, you know, he tries to steal the car. Um, Walt obviously is, is going to defend his property being being who he is. And so he catches him red handed and uh, chases him out of the out of the garage. He does, but not before pulling the classic Clint Eastwood slash Walt move pointing a gun in Tao's face because he sees a little gangbanger in his garage. Clint Eastwood comes out, pulls the gun. But again, like he's a sad old man. He's not Dirty Harry anymore. 
Walt trips. He falls over a jack in his garage. He accidentally shoots the gun. So Tao gets away. But Walt may indeed have shot him in that moment if that wouldn't have happened. Oh, yeah. Uh, I wouldn't doubt that for a second. Okay. So Tao fails. And Walt doesn't realize right at the time it's this next door neighbor that tried to steal his car. Because that car is his pride and joy. Let, I'll, I'll give you the uh, honors. Talk about that Grand Torino in this movie, how much it means to Walt. It's pretty much, I mean, at this point in his life, it's pretty much the only thing that he really cares about. I mean, other than his dog, um, he does uh, talk a little bit, bit about it. I can't remember at what point in the movie, but he talks about how he put the transmission into himself uh, when he used to work at the at the Ford factory, which he you know worked at for most of his life, uh, which is also you know echoed a few times in the movie uh, when he comments on his uh, his his children driving a Land Cruiser, obviously not an American car, although I think I think there's a chance it probably was built in America, ironically. <laughs> but um, uh, the it's I mean yeah, like I said, the car is pretty much all he has at this point. Yeah, I'll, okay, let's talk about that. I'm glad you brought that up. So this movie was written as a set in Minnesota. Apparently Minnesota is where this big Hmong community is. That's where the Lutherans, if you know anything about Lutherans in Minnesota, that's uh, <laughs> that's uh, Fargo world up there. They love their Lutherans. So that's, I thought it was Detroit. Yeah, they the script was written in Minnesota, but they couldn't figure out the rights to film there, so it had to move to Detroit for the eventual movie. So... What's interesting about that, yeah, what's interesting about that is if you switch the movie to Detroit, now you have Walt as a bitter old Ford factory worker who, and this is very true, I'm just not just making this up, this is historically a big deal, American car factory workers in Detroit were really pissed when the Japanese cars moved into the U.S. and all the factories shut down, so... If you're looking for a place where people would be very racist against Asians, Detroit would be about the highest place in the U.S., especially among former car makers. So that's very important. And Korean veterans. Yeah, exactly. So it's very important to understand why Walt the way he is, knowing he's a former Ford plant worker. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So this is his car. He built that Grand Torino himself. It's the only pride and joy he has. And the fact that this little fucker tried to steal his car, he is so pissed. And I know, I remember the next move Walt has is he parks his car out in front of the house the next day just to show off to all the gangbangers that you can't touch my car, you assholes. Yeah, I caught that as well. That's a great little moment. He's, he's you know, bragging about it, uh, showing that he, you know, trying to show that he's still the top dog in the neighborhood, but... I mean, he's really not. <laughs> okay, I, I don't know if you're a football fan, but I read a little bit of trivia about this movie. So, like I said, the director or the writer who wrote it said it in Minnesota, and there's a line in the script where uh, the Walt's kids are trying to get Minnesota Viking season tickets from him. Like, can you get get me some free tickets? And he's like, that was a big deal because Minnesota football games always sell out. But when they moved the script to Detroit, they had to change that line to, can you get me some Detroit Lions season tickets? And the writer was so pissed because he knows Detroit Lions games never sell out. So that line did not ring true to him. So it's just I thought that was funny. <laughs> that is funny. I didn't I guess I didn't realize that about uh Minnesota versus uh versus the Lions, but uh wasn't didn't they go undefeated? I think they went on undefe- on sorry. 2008 was the season that they lost every single game. So I don't think anyone was probably going to those games. Yeah. 
it's always funny. Again, I'm from California. So, like, I know regional stuff around California, Arizona, Nevada. So it's funny when I, you know, you see these movies set in areas of the country I don't know anything about. Like, oh, Minnesota makes fun of Detroit because nobody sells out their football games. I, I just love little stuff like that I never would have considered. <laughs> okay, so here we go. So the Asians have tried to steal Walt's car the first time. That initiation failed. And so now they come back to Tao's house the next night. And this is where shit's really going to go down. This is where Walt actually gets involved, right? He does. So uh, the gang members come back over to Tao's house and they're, you know, kind of mocking him for his his failure, but they're they're ready to give him a second chance. But Tao isn't having it. He does. I mean, he's he doesn't know what he really wants to do with his life, but he's he's definitely decided that he doesn't want to be involved with the gang. So uh, he kind of fights back against them uh, and they don't really like it. Yeah. Okay. so there's a big fight. So the Asian gang comes. They try to recruit Tao. Tao fights them off and it's like a big fist fight in the yard and as the fist fight progresses it kind of moves into Walt's yard next door now Walt would not be pleased with a bunch of Asian gangbangers on his front yard smashing his little lawn gnomes and getting into his garden so he comes out with his gun again and he you literally see in the movie where he actually says get off my lawn so I have to give the movie credit for that you actually see that in a movie I know you really it, you really just needed that for it to be fulfilled with this movie but uh yeah again it delivers. <laughs> so this is where we get the showdown you got these five gangbangers who are hardcore gangbangers. We'll see later they have guns and stuff and they're like what are you doing old man like get out stop pointing that gun at us and and Walt he will take no shit from any kid ever. And he's got a great quote here. They're like you know you point that keep pointing that gun at me old man we'll kill you. Like, you don't know who you're messing with. And Clint Eastwood has so many great monologues in this movie. He says, no, son, you don't know who you're messing with. I used to stack guys like you five dead in Korea. Use you for sandbags. I'll blow your head off and sleep like a fucking baby tonight. So it's established very early on. He is a notable adversary for this gang who is not used to anybody standing up to them. Yeah, uh, it's it's very apparent that uh, these gangs, you know, the the guns seem to mostly be for show. Uh, it's I, I wouldn't be surprised if if in the back of their minds they were thinking that they probably hadn't actually killed anyone, but in that moment they kind of realize he he's actually this guy's actually killed people. Like, um, you know, most people don't use an M1 Garand for uh, home defense. It's not a very effective rifle for that purpose. Uh, but you know, this guy. Yeah, he's trained with it. He he knows how to use it, uh, and he's ready to use it because he's used it. Yeah, he is the real deal. In fact, later, the priest will show up, and he said, hey, I heard there was an incident here last night. I heard you pulled a gun on some gangbangers. And Clint's like, that's what I do. I'm not a negotiator. I'm a finisher. And the priest is like, this is not Korea. You're not in the war. You cannot do that. This is not what an an average, healthy adult individual does. You need to learn that. So the priest is trying to reason with Clint Eastwood that violence is not the only answer. And it's really interesting how the story will develop to the end of the movie where Clint will realize that violence is indeed not the answer. But at this point, he has not learned that yet. And with that, let's, uh, let's delve into this Hmong with uh, Walt relationship because after Walt drives off the gang members, all of a sudden he is a unexpected hero in the neighborhood because nobody has ever stood up to this gang before and now all the Hmong families start bringing him gifts and he's like what the fuck is this 
Yeah, he doesn't like it one bit. He wakes up one morning and his his front porch is just covered in food and gifts and and other Hmong stuff, and he he doesn't like it. Yeah, that's the and they come over and Sue. This is the daughter next door, probably the. She's she's young. She's you know uh, seems to be on the right track, well put together. Uh, not not really a, a burnout or uh, kind of you know aimless like like her younger brother. I mean she's she's you know doing something with her life it seems like yeah she is well adjusted she's smart she knows english well she's going to college she is the voice of reason in this movie and she's the only one who really speaks really fluent english that can converse with walt so she comes over she's the older daughter she's like 16 17 and she thanks him she's like you know you're a hero that's why everyone's bringing you gifts that's what mungs do we are grateful for people in the community we look out for each other and he's like well just stay i didn't do anything heroic she's like you did you saved tao from the gang members and what is this quote here? <laughs> I am going to get canceled, kind of quoting Clint Eastward. I didn't do anything heroic. I just kicked some jibber-jabbering gooks off my property. I'm no hero. <laughs> yeah, so. But that's, I mean, that's the why the movie gets in trouble, because Clint does stuff like that. But she says, you are a hero. And from here on out, he's really the hero to the neighborhood the entire movie, except, like you said, the old conservative grandmother who just calls him the white devil. Yeah, that woman's hilarious. All right, so the movie's going to progress with Walt being progressively more drawn into the lives of these uh, Hmong refugees next door. But first, we have a couple discussions here. First, the priest says, you know, you know, Walt, your first instinct is for violence on everything. You carry this burden on things you did in Korea. You're so angry, you have to drop that. And there's a really interesting quote here that I think people kind of overlook. They kind of forget where Clint says, yeah, you know, I do have scars from Korea. I do have all these bad memories, but... The thing that haunts the man the most is what he isn't ordered to do. So we're going to learn that Walt did some shit in Korea he, he did on his own. He's very, this haunts him. Yeah, it's a really important line to take note of. And it, uh, we don't learn a ton about Walt, uh, especially early on in the movie, but uh, there's a lot that you can kind of infer. Yeah, and I guess we'll spoil it a little bit. That What we're going to find out is that Clint was, or, Walt, when he was a soldier back in Korea, was ordered to round up some prisoners that were, you know, uh, surrendering and they were unarmed and ready to give up. And just because of the hatred in his heart, he blew their heads off. He killed these kids who were unarmed and ready to surrender. So he has had to live with that for years. This is why he's never been able to find peace, because he's got all these hatred and violence in his heart. And again, we're going to learn he's going to systematically drop that as it goes along. But OK, so that's that's where we're going. All right, let's talk about this other character here, the barber. <laughs> I just have to talk about this guy. You like the barber? Oh, he's great. <laughs> the barber is Walt's really only close friend in the world. Just his old, balding barber, played by John Carroll Lynch, one of my favorite uh, that guy actors. You may know him. God, he's in a ton of stuff. He's in Zodiac. He's in Fargo. He's in The Invitation. You know, you know him, John Carroll Lynch? He's in Fargo. He's Margie's husband, Norm, son of a Gunderson. Yeah, he's one of those guys that you, you know, you you recognize him, but you you might not know what his name is, but you've definitely seen him. Yeah, so he is just this old, crotchety barber, just like Clint Eastwood, just like Walt. And once a week, I think Walt goes in there, gets his hair cut, maybe once a month, I have no idea. And all they do is do what old-timey racist guys do and just ex exchange ethnic jokes. How you doing, you old Dago? Hey, you dumb Pollock. What's up, you wop? Like, this is how they talk. And... I've read some controversy where people don't like these scenes. They're like, I don't like that they're glorifying the way these guys talk. But 
you could easily look at it the other way is that these guys are set in this old timey past that doesn't exist anymore and they just do not adjust to the modern world. And that's part of Walt's problem. So I don't know if it's necessarily glorifying these guys. I think it's more pointing out how sad it is that this is the world he still lives in. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, for, from my perspective, I just kind of laughed at it. Like, yeah, they're, they might be caricatures, but um, you know, for the sake of accuracy, I mean, it's, no point in erasing that people like this did and still do exist. I mean, it, do, you, do you want the movie to be realistic or not? Yeah, that that once again, I'm so glad you you mentioned it just that way. This is how characters like that talk, and you can't get around that. So, yeah, more power to the movie for putting this in there. Because again, do you want realism or do you want it to be whitewashed? This is exactly how that scene would go with these two characters. That's how those guys talk. Okay. So with that, now Walt's going to get drawn into this uh, storyline even more because, you know, Tao has been attacked by a gang. Walt doesn't really care about Tao. He could give a shit about this little wimpy Asian kid next door. But Sue, the older daughter, he's always kind of noble towards. He kind of likes her, and she has a little more head on her shoulders than everybody else. And one day when he's driving home from the barber shop, he sees her being menaced by one of the gangs. This is the black gang in town, and they're, like, threatening to, like, assault her. And Walt may be an asshole, but one, he was, one thing he will not abide is a woman being attacked in his town. So he comes to her defense. Yeah, this is another interesting scene. Another one of those uh, unintentionally or intentionally funny scenes with the, this incredibly cringy white guy who's uh, trying to play the part of a gangster but fails in, in the most epic fashion. <laughs> so let's talk about this uh, assault scene a little bit where Sue is kind of being menace like they're threatening they're gonna rape her right there on the street this black gang and walt pulls up and walt gets out of his car he will not abide people attacking girls on the street in his town he comes out and, and these black kids are like what are you doing old man you what, what do you think you're doing talking to us and and walt has a line here ever notice how you cross somebody every once in a while who you shouldn't have fucked with well that's me <laughs> and he's got this move where he reaches into his pocket like he's gonna pull a gun but he doesn't. He pulls like a little finger gun and he pretends he shoots them. And they're like, what the fuck is this guy doing? And then he reaches in and pulls out the 44 Magnum Dirty Harry gun. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like Clint is straight up crazy. And he kind of saves Sue from being attacked here. Yeah, I mean, he, it's almost like he's playing with them. And uh, it kind of – you kind of see them get more and more scared, the, the black gang throughout the scene. Because, um, you know, first I think he's just some weird old man. Then they realize he's a – crazy old man then they realized oh this guy's this guy's definitely again killed people uh <laughs> then that that's when they uh they back down and, and they they quit messing with sue um and then uh he's got some choice words for the for the white guy that she was with <laughs> it's really just hilarious <laughs> yeah i didn't write that one down but he just totally dresses down that little white gangbanger so walt i mean he's racist but he just hates everybody he mostly just hates young people it seems yeah i mean there's again he's he's pretty much alone in in his life and there doesn't have anything going for him so uh i mean i'd be pissed too yeah okay and we, we'll talk about his one move here because i kind of forgot how well this scene sets up the final scene of the movie now i'm assuming you guys have seen the movie we're we're trying not to spoil it too hard it's got such a powerful ending i don't want to tip my hand too early but walt has a move here where he reaches into his jacket he like he's reaching for a gun and he pulls out his finger gun and it's like how he fucks with people. And then he goes into the jacket the second time. Then he pulls the real gun. So this will set you up very nicely for the ending of the movie. Just remember that. 
Okay, with that, we have the scene where he tells Sue to get in the car, I'll drive you home, I'll protect you from these gangs, and this might be my favorite scene in the movie. There's a couple really funny scenes where he and Sue get to know each other in the car. Yeah, they, they have a really good on-screen dynam- dynamic, um, and it's it's just fun to watch him learn from her and just because it's really like seems to be like the first learning that he's really done in a very long time uh, and you kind of see how at first he's just like begrudgingly just making polite company but that he you know general generally yeah genuinely takes an interest in her and, and what she's talking about yeah and that's it's an interesting choice here in his character because you know he gets her in the car and the first thing he says was What's the matter with you hanging out with those gangbangers? I thought you Asian girls were smart. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I know. I, I shouldn't have been there. And then he starts asking, like, what's the deal with your family? Are you guys, like, savages, barbarians? You're eating cats and dogs? And she's like, no, idiot. And that's what I like about the scene is she gives him shit right back. She will not take this shit. She just jokes with him. Yeah, I get it. They have such a great dynamic. and it's It's hilarious to watch. Yeah, but uh, this is where she explains most of the uh, backstory in the movie. He's like, what is Hmong? What is the Hmong? And she says it's Hmong. And she explains the whole story that, you know, we were refugees uh, from Laos, Thailand, and China. It's not a place. It's a people. And Walt's like, what are you, jungle people? And he's, she's like, no, we're hell people. We just don't have a place to live. We come here. And this is where she really explains the whole history of her culture. And it's not only to him, it's to us. Because I'm assuming you, like me, this is the first time you'd ever heard the backstory of the Hmongs in a movie. Yeah, I mean, when when I bet if you polled Americans of the ones who know who Hmong are, then I would I would wager a bet that a significant portion of them probably the extent of their knowledge is like this scene. <laughs> yeah, and I imagine this is probably very accurate. Like there may be some inaccuracies in the Hmong stereotypes in this movie, but I would assume this is very well researched because the entire point of it was to introduce people to the Hmong community. So I'm assuming all this is correct. I mean. I, have you ever read that it's not? Uh, I, I haven't, so I would I would also assume that. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna err on the side of uh, accuracy and say everything she says here is correct. And at one point, Walt says, "What about your little dumb brother Tao? Who he calls him Toad, which I love. He never really gets Tao's name right. Toad. What, what is he slow or something?" And Sue says, "No, he's he's a good kid. He's very responsible. He's hardworking. He just has no male role models." And she points out, you know, a lot of the fathers and grandfathers. In our, in our families died in the war or didn't survive or came over to the U.S. and didn't assimilate. And she points out the women tend to do better in America than the boys. The, the girls all fit in better. They learn English. They go to college. And she's like, the boys go to jail. And that's the problem with the Mungs is we don't have many strong male role models. So Clint already in his head kind of realizes, oh, crap, like he might be the only real male in this neighborhood protecting it now. So from here on out, Walt is kind of aware of this community around him, these Asians who he doesn't really have anything in common with, he doesn't think, but he's kind of the watchman. You notice that he kind of sits on his porch and just wa- porch and just watches now. He kind of has appoints himself as the guardian of the neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, he's he slowly continues to take more and more of an interest in, in his neighbors and, and in his neighborhood, and uh, he, he goes to a few more events at their house, continues to, uh, I think throughout the rest of the movie, he's still getting gifts from, from them for, for, for saving the, saving Tao on his lawn, but uh, I mean, they're, they, they're 
take an interest in him. He takes an interest in them, and their relationship starts to grow, continues to grow. Everybody except the grandma, who, like you said, this movie's kind of sneaky funny, that Walt sits out on his porch and watches for crime. The grandma next door sits on her porch and watches him, and they just spit on the ground when they look at each other. She will never like him. Yeah, it's a hilarious dynamic there. Uh, she's like his his worst enemy somehow. <laughs> but there is an important scene here is that even though Walt hates Tao, thinks Tao's a little pussy and he's worthless and weak, he does see one day that Tao has a good heart. And there's a scene where there's a woman across the street trying to load groceries into her car and she drops her bag. And these kids kind of walk by and make fun of her. They don't help her. And Walt's like, like he cannot understand young people not helping a woman, an older woman in distress. But Tao actually walks over and helps the woman load groceries into her car. So this is a big moment in the story where Walt realizes Tao actually has some nobility and there's a chance for this kid. Yeah, he actually doesn't suck as much as the other people do, as other people do. Yeah, Tao might be the one good kid. And this is, we will see this uh, conversely compared to Walt's own children. This is the scene where they try to get him to sell the house and move into a retirement home. Now, I know you have something to say about this because Walt's kids are dicks. He absolutely hates his kids. Yeah, they I mean they're horrible to him. They it seems as though they uh, only ever come to him when they when they need something from him. Uh I mean they bring him a birthday cake on his birthday, but uh at the same time that they try and uh, put him in a home. So, I mean, you got sympathy for him. His his kids suck, and, you know, part of that's probably his fault, but, you know, it's it's kind of a downward spiral. Uh, also worth noting, his uh, daughter-in-law's name is Karen, for, for what it's worth. <laughs> I never caught that she was a Karen. Wow, good catch. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, admittedly, you know, Walt's family dynamic sucks, and that's why I say this is really a sad movie. Like, you will empathize with Walt throughout this movie when you see how loveless his existence really is. He he has nothing to live for. And that's why it's very important, like Jack said, he's going to start getting invited to these Hmong family uh, gatherings, and he's going to realize very quickly he prefers hanging out with the Hmongs than he does with, the, does with his own deadbeat kids. Yeah, and again, it's just a really weird and, and a humorous dynamic to watch. But uh, there's some genuinely funny scenes when he's, you know, at their parties, learning about them and interacting with them. Because there's clearly a very wide cultural divide. But uh, you know, like we said, they're uh, they're in many ways more conservative than him. And it's finally, you know, it's 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 a community and a culture that he's able to take part in. I think that's what he you know, really is missed, and he finally gets that again. Wait, are you suggesting there's a wide cultural divide between first-generation Hmong immigrants and Walt Kowalski? How dare you? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what uh, what can you say? Okay, so here we go. This is The movie's going to go through a really sweet, touching period here, where one day, you know, the Hmongs are still bringing Walt all these gifts for thanking, for saving Tao, and he's like, stop bringing me food. He hates it. But one day they're having a big barbecue next door. And this is a big 20, 25-minute scene, big chunk of the movie here, where Sue is going to come over and invite Walt over to the family barbecue. And he's like, I don't want to go over there. You eat you eat dogs. You're going to eat my dog. And she just bl blows him off. She's like, no, we only eat cats, you retard. Like, <laughs> she just doesn't care. But she invites him over. And I think what draws him over is the fact that they have beer because he, he's run out of beer and they have some. So he only goes over for the free beer. Oh, yeah. And also, I forgot. 
She will forever in this movie never actually call him Walt. She calls him Wally. And he hates it, but she still does it. And I love that little dynamic. But I think he really likes it because it's, it's the only person in the movie and with the exception of, of Tao and the priest later on, like towards the end. But she's the only one who really gives it right back to him. Like, uh, you know, he's aggressive. He's blunt. He's uh, crass. But, you know, she she gives it right back to him. And it's it's funny to watch. She's got a lot of spunk. And he, he appreciates that. Yeah, I think the underlying thing is that he she is actually acknowledging him. Like, nobody has acknowledged this guy in years. And it's even worse since his wife died. He just sits on his porch and drinks beer and eats beef jerky. And Sue will just come over and talk to him. Even though he says go away, she won't. She just acknowledges him and asks him questions and small talks. And I think he's kind of touched by, like, how forward she is. Yeah, it's it's also, like, kind of the only time that someone really takes an interest in him and is, like, talking to him in a way that he appreciates and isn't trying to get something from him. And so he kind of – I think he appreciates that too. Yeah, it's probably been a very long time since somebody has just done that. And so, so, yeah, he comes over to the barbecue, and there's a lot of funny stuff here where he's committing cultural faux pas left and right, like he pats a girl on the head, which you're not supposed to do. He looks people in the eye. He turns down the food. He says the food smells weird. So, like, he's just a walking faux pas. And this is where the roles are reversed, where he's now the minority, and they all think he's an idiot, and they're making fun of him. So he's not used to that. Yeah, but he, he learns pretty quickly, and uh, I, I think they are uh, – their understanding of it because, you know, they're – just as weirded out by a white guy in their house as the white guy is by being in their house. Exactly, and that's the really important takeaway here. Everyone is a minority somewhere, and it's so much more interesting when you've been through both scenarios. And we definitely see that here where Walt walks in their house, and the old Asian grandma is like, ah, 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 starts you know gibbering in, in her language. I hate that man. Get him out of here. He doesn't belong here. White devil, white devil, racist. And Clint's like, what is she saying? And, and Sue's like, oh, she's saying how happy she is to see you, which is clearly not what she's saying. But it's just funny that Sue has to kind of pre- prevent all the mungs from just driving this guy out because they hate him, too. Yeah, I think he I think I think he mentions that, too. He's like, gosh, that's not what she's saying. is it? <laughs> and Sue's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so Walt eventually is won over by this barbecue by the food and this is such a cute scene that walt doesn't want to be there he hates these people he thinks they're savages but the food smells so good and he has admitted since his wife dies all he eats is beef jerky and beer so like he's smelling all this barbecue and all this home-cooked food and he cannot resist just digging in and there's a really cute scene where all the moms and grandmas are like fawning over him just spoon feeding him and again I'm Italian. I've come from this Italian culture. I've seen the grandmothers spoon feeding the boys. I've seen this. So it's so cute seeing Walt being fawned over by all these women that just want to feed him. It's it's hilarious. It's the one way one true way to an American's heart, food, beer. What else do you need? <laughs> Although there's one interesting scene here that really I think it's kind of eye-opening for Walt that somewhere at the party there's this uh they call him the uh the family shaman and Walt's like, well, he's like a witch doctor. And Sue's like, no, he's just like a holy man. He does readings. He's like a psychic. And she's like, he would really like to do a reading of you. He's been reading your aura from across the room. So the shaman comes over and Walt wants no part of this. He goes, this is what is this mumbo jumbo black magic? But the shaman just absolutely rips his heart out. Do you remember the shaman's reading of him? Yeah. I mean, he essentially gets it exactly right it's obviously embellished for film i'm not sure if uh, a shaman like this could ever be be so accurate but i mean he hits the nail on the head he calls out 
all of Walt's insecurities. He recognizes the the trauma, if, if that's an appropriate word, or difficulties that he's faced in his life, and uh, uh, really accurately reads him and and understands comes to an understanding of Walt that uh, even he himself, I, I'm not sure, has faced. Yeah, nobody has ever spoken to Walt this way. Walt is such a tough sob. You cannot crack this guy. And the shaman just goes right to his soul and says, people do not respect you. They don't even want to look at you. The way you live, your food has no flavor. You're worried about your life. You don't enjoy it. And the shaman says, I can tell you made a mistake in your past life, a mistake you are not satisfied with. You have no happiness in your life. You are not at peace. And Walt is just like taken aback because nobody has ever read him like that. And I don't think he's even noticed that about himself. Yeah, but I, I think in the moment he totally recognizes, oh, this guy's totally right. Uh, and it maybe doesn't crack him, but it gets pretty close. Yeah, okay. And so here's the second part of the party. So Walt is kind of seeing some realizations that people are seeing him for what he is and not just this tough exterior he's put up. And this is where he uh, goes upstairs and he's in the bathroom and he utters the quote again. Hate to quote it, but it is Grand Torino. He says, my God, I've got more in common with these gooks than my spoiled, rotten family. Jesus Christ. And he's kind of coming to a realization. He likes these people. It, it's it's so betraying to his worldview. He can't really handle it. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a interesting kind of recognition scene and also juxtaposed with him uh, coughing up blood in the bathroom. Uh, but i mean it from everything we've seen it it really makes sense it fits it's like a like a puzzle yeah and the thing about the coughing up blood is interesting there's all these hints throughout the movie that walt is actually dying he has lung cancer he's a smoker through the whole movie he doesn't have long to live and he kind of is the only person that knows that so his story will take on a little more poignancy when you realize he is reaching the end of his life he has not reached peace he has not found god he has never atoned for his sins and it's going to become fairly important to him to do that, even though he claims to hate religion. But I think it is secretly going to be very important to him. Yeah, it does. You know, may, I don't know if it's in that moment, but he does slowly come to that realization that he, he needs some sort of purpose as he's reaching the end of his life. OK, so let's go downstairs here because there's a very important part of this movie here where Sue takes him away from the food. He's being fawned over by all the grandmas. She makes him go downstairs and mingle with all the young mungs, all the young people hang out downstairs. <laughs> now, this is some of the funnier scenes in the movie where <laughs> Walt has to interact with this young, pretty girl named ya or Yua, Yua. And I love Walt will never once in this movie get her name correct. He, re he will constantly refer to her as Yum Yum because he thinks that's her name. Yeah, he he does that with Tao and Toad a lot too. I, I'm not sure if he does it with Sue. I don't think he does, but uh, they almost find it to be like a novelty because it's like, oh, of course this is how the the old crotchety racist white guy talks to us. They they kind of laugh at it because it's it's they 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 laugh at it when it's clearly not done out of malice like it is earlier in the movie, mm -hmm. um, and so it just kind of uh, highlights that they're they they kind of understand each other. Yeah, and I, I think it's an important moment here because there's this – she's probably 16, 17-year-old, beautiful Asian girl walks up and just introduces herself. And she's not really flirting with him, but she's showing him attention. And this is not something that happens in Walt's life that women show him attention, especially young, beautiful ones. And he's kind of taken aback at how you know aggressive and forward she is. And she's like laughing at his jokes, and she's not offended when he calls her yum-yum or makes racist comments. And he's like charmed by her, and she says – 
I like you. You're funny. And he's like, I've been called a lot of things in my life, but never funny. So he doesn't realize he's kind of a, 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 uh, token mascot to this crowd. And he like, he kind of likes it. I think. Yeah. Again, it's finally people are appreciate appreciating him for, for, you know, a weird reason, but they're appreciating him nonetheless. <laughs> yes. And here's another uh, fun part of Walt's personality. He sees that this beautiful girl, I will just call her Yum Yum, because that's how they call her in the movie. Yum Yum is looking at Tao over in the corner, the little pussy Asian boy. And she keeps looking at him and smiling, and Tao never looks back. And Walt is so offended by this behavior that he has to go over and talk to Tao and, call it, and tell him what an incredible pussy he is. Oh, it's a hilarious little scene. Uh, they just engage in some classic locker room talk, or uh, Walt does at least. Tao does not really know how to do that. Uh, my favorite word thrown out here is puss cake. I mean, that's just hilarious. I've never heard anyone say that before or since. It's hilarious. Uh, it's 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 funny to watch, and uh, it's that little bit of a uh, little bit of pressure that Tao kind of needs to get his act together a little bit. So it does kind of work. Yeah, it's interesting because Tao has never had a father, and you can see Walt was never good with his kids. So you see Walt go over and say, hey, what up, puss cake? That pretty girl's looking at you. You don't do anything, dipshit. You're so soft and weak. Like, grow some balls, you little turd. And, like, you could possibly see why Walt's kids didn't like him growing up. Yeah, uh, it probably doesn't work for everyone, but uh, it might work for some people. It seems to work for Tao. Yeah. So, yeah, Walt basically just berates Tao. Like, you tried to steal my car. You, uh, you're even worse at picking up women than you are at stealing cars. That girl, Yum Yum, she is beautiful. I would love to date her if I were your age. She's throwing eyes at you across the room. You do nothing. You are so pathetic and weak. And Tao actually kind of stands up to him a little bit here, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of the first time that we really see him push back and uh, stand up for himself, and that's when uh, I, I think that's kind of when Walt kind of realizes, you know, maybe he could do something for this kid. Maybe this kid isn't a total burnout. Yeah, I think that's the moment because he always refers to Tao as Toad, and Tao says, "My name's not Toad, it's Tao," and that's like the first time he's seen any spunk in this kid at all. And I think Walt genuinely respects that, so I think this is kind of the turning point. Okay, so let's fast forward. I don't want to make this a three-hour podcast. So we're only halfway through the movie. So here we go. So the women in the neighborhood are still bringing Walt all these gifts. He he doesn't want the gifts. He finds it very uncomfortable. But damn it, that food is so good. He cannot relent from the Hmong food. But now the women in the neighborhood are going to up the stakes is that they say, you know what? It was very shameful that this Tao tried to steal your car. He tried to break into your your house, blah, blah, blah. They offer up Tao's services as a handyman. They're like, Tao needs to work to you. He needs to work off his debt. This brought shame on the family. He is now your basically indentured servant for a week. Make him work for you. And and Walt wants no part of this, right? Because he thinks Tao's a pussy. He doesn't at first, but uh, he, he warms up to it pretty quickly and uh, realizes that uh, he's going to enjoy it, just bossing the kid around and uh, you know, roasting him basically. Uh, but also it's, uh, he recognizes that it's an opportunity for him to improve the visual state of his neighborhood, which frankly is one of the only things that occupies him these days. We, we see him cutting his lawn a few times throughout the movie. Um, we see him remark about, uh, the state of the houses nearby, how they're, uh, you know, not kept up well, but he continues to immaculately manicure his lawn and take care of his house. 
but and I think once he recognizes he has that opportunity to make his neighborhood look like it did 40, 50 years ago, oh boy, is he excited. Yeah, I don't think this is driven by any sort of benevolence towards Tao. He just wants to fix up his neighborhood. He's like, I got a slave. This kid will work for me. The family's ordering him. So he's not doing it to help Tao, but this is a big, long montage of the movie where Walt gets to learn Tao that Tao actually has a pretty good work ethic. And Walt is impressed. He sees Tao working out there in the rain. Tao finishes through on projects. He actually does what he's told. And we gain a slow, begrudging respect for this Tao kid that actually does look like he might, like he might be a neighborhood asset. So it's a really, it's a kind of a long stretch of movie here that's very touching. Yeah, and again, it's funny because you, you really see the joy that uh, Walt kind of takes it. It just ordering someone around like that. Uh, I think he tells him to go clean up a wasp nest at one point, which I'm sure he enjoyed watching from afar. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an important scene. Yeah, I love that wasp nest scene because, yeah, the neighbors are lining up because they know that Walt has a little servant boy doing uh, errands around the neighborhood. So they just come to Walt with their wish list, like a little girl. Can you have Tao clean out our wasp nest? And Walt is overjoyed. He pulls out his little notebook. Clean up wasp nest. Yes, I would love to make him do that. So Walt is just enjoying this. Okay, so the last day of work, Tao's there for a week, and then uh, the last day, Walt gives him the day off because he's worked hard enough. And So basically, their relationship should be over. Tao has cleaned up the neighborhood. He has repaid his debt. And this is where we find out the actual twist in the movie where Walt is dying, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting little scene, again, hitting home the cultural differences in his community. He goes into the doctor's office, uh, is the only white person there, uh, is uh, invited into the clinic by uh, a Muslim woman who cannot even pronounce his name correctly. Um, and then, lo and behold, his longtime doctor has been replaced by an Asian woman. Uh, a very uh, American Asian woman from, from the sound of her voice uh, compared to the, the members of the Hmong community. But uh, um, it's, <laughs> he doesn't take it too well. Yeah. Okay. So we learn that Walt has cancer. He's dying. And there's a very sad scene here that I always forget is in this movie where Walt calls his son. Walt has never gotten along with his son. They don't like each other. They don't respect each other. And Walt is going to tell his son that he's dying. And his son is too busy to take the call. His son's like, uh, can this wait, Dad? I'm doing something. Uh, I'll call you back later, okay? And that's really the last straw in the movie, that Walt will never have anything to do with his family again. He kind of likes this Hmong family, to be honest. They're kind of his new family. And from here on out, he is 100% invested in basically getting to know Tao and kind of mentoring him. Yeah, it's. It, I agree. It's. It's very sad, but um, you know, he's. He's. It's almost as though he's moved on, or at least he's definitely moved on after, after the scene where he calls his son uh, and just decides to focus on, focus on his new Hmong family, as you put it, from from there on out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we get a long stretch here where Tao is done fixing the neighborhood but Tao has been so inspired that he actually had a purpose and learned some skills on fixing now he's fixing up his own house he's coming over to Walt to ask for tools to ask how tools work and this is a really touching relationship because Tao really takes an interest in what Walt can do and kind of his skills and Walt has not felt necessary or valuable to anybody in so long he really kind of eats this up doesn't he yeah, I mean, it's there's a really long stretch where he's basically treating Tao as if he were his own son. Uh, he totally 
Tao totally grows into that role. I mean, he teaches him about tools, teaches him about girls, teaches him how to get a job, teaches him how to uh, talk like a man in front of the uh, the old barber, which is another absolutely laugh out loud scene. Yeah. So Walt and Tao are developing the surrogate father-son relationship. Again, very reluctantly, they have nothing in common, but they both have the uh, the one thing the other one lacks. And I'm always a sucker for stories like that, that, you know, Tao needs a role model. Walt needs to feel respected and needed, and they just somehow click. And, yeah, it's a big, long stretch where he starts letting Tao borrow his tools. He buys him a tool belt. He gets him a job at a construction company. And this is where I think the, another important point here is where Tao explains the gang situation where Tao's like, yeah, that gang's been trying to get me to join them for years. And Walt's like, why do you want to be there? What do they have to offer you? And Tao's like, nothing really, I guess, protection. Like, they'll hurt me if I don't. And this is where Tao admits, that's the reason I was trying to steal your car. They told me to. That was the job. So he learns right now, Tao was never a bad kid. Tao is just being pressured. And Walt is very protective of him from here on out. He is, and, and you know, the, the film does spend a long stretch kind of hammering this home. Uh, and it's really quite touching to watch them kind of – to watch the kind of father-son relationship grow and blossom, that the, the relationship that they have. Yeah, and it feels very real. There's almost not a false note in this entire stretch of the movie. So I don't get some of the criticism when they say the acting's not good or it's, you know, cliched or the white man hero syndrome like – Tao and the family is saving Walt just as much as he's saving them. Like, this is not a white savior movie. Everyone's getting saved here. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Okay. And this is where we get a scene we talked about earlier where Sue kind of comes over and talks to Walt. She's like, hey, Wally, thanks for looking after my brother. And he's like, don't call me Wally. And she's like, oh, whatever, Wally. But she says, you know, Tao has never had a male role model. This is so good for him. He's learning. He's, you know, maturing. He's growing into a man. And this is the scene we talked about that was really interesting. She's like, you're a good man, Wally. I wish our father had been more like you. And she's like, he was too conservative. And Walt's like, you don't think I'm conservative, a racist Korean war vet? And she's like, yeah, but you're American. It's different, which is such an interesting statement. I love that statement. Yeah, that's a really that's a really neat scene, too, because uh, most people probably don't recognize that but this is kind of where they try and hit you with that 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 he's not the most conservative guy out there and that uh even that persona that he puts on there there's there's plenty of people like that out there and some that are even stronger than him oh yeah sue has seen worse and i think that's what really comes through she's like oh you're a big old gruff asshole but i've seen worse wally like she just does not give into his crap which is what really turns him around okay so Really, we're going to get to the last part of the movie here that uh, Walt has really taken Tao under his wing. He's taught him some construction skills. He lets him borrow tools, buys him a tool belt. And there's a big touching scene where he gets uh, Tao a, a, his first job on a construction site. Yeah, this is uh, in that kind of montage section of the movie where they're trying to – he's just kind of acting as his father figure, so he – takes him to a construction site which fits well because he's taught him a lot about tools and being a, being handy and uh you know teaches him how to uh you know hurl racial slurs at white people um which is typically more accepted than at, at other colors of people um and uh it works he Tao gets the job uh he starts it um uh, starts on his new site and, and walt takes him to 
you know, he, Walt even takes him to, to buy some new tools for his job. Yeah, this is a really nice stretch of movie, and they're about to rip your heart out. That's the thing. This movie, you think it's going in a nice direction, and it's not going to. It's going to get very tragic because as Tao's life is being turned around, he's discovering how to be a man, he's discovering skills, how to shake people's hands, how to look them in the eye when he talks, how to get jobs. Tao is really blossoming. The gang is still after him. We have not forgotten about this gang. And one day on the way home from work, the gang will assault Tao and steal his tool belt and steal his tools. So in the big picture of things, there's only so far Tao will ever be able to get in this life before the gangs are going to take it away. And that is the sad reality. He is never going to succeed. They will always crush him. Yeah, he's kind of stuck under their thumbs. And uh, it's, again, a really sad part of the movie because... You know, he was finally for for you know for Tao, he was finally uh, turning things around and starting to uh, to do something with his life. But uh, it's you know all comes comes tumbling down. I mean, there's a little boys in the hood here. I don't know if you know that movie, the one kid trying to escape the gang and all the gang pressures there, and you're rooting for this one kid, and they usually do not end happily. That's what I hate to say. And this movie's gonna turn it on its head a little bit, but it's basically the same gist. This one kid. You know he has it in him to escape the gang, but it's probably not going to happen. That's just how life works. All right, so here we go. So Tao gets beaten up by the gang, and they steal his tools, and they assault him, and, and Walt is infuriated. I mean, Walt has been told repeatedly in this movie, stay out of it, this is a Hmong thing, the gangs want me, don't get involved. Tao even says, yeah, they took my tools, don't go to their house, don't confront them, but Walt in his full dirty hairy regalia is going to go and confront the gang. And that's what this movie is really interesting is that it's, uh, this is not the correct move. Walt is going to fuck up really badly here. Yeah. Walt, uh, basically drives over to the gang's house and, uh, confronts them head on, uh, beats up one of the kids in the, in his front yard, which is, uh, pretty impressive, frankly. I mean, it's a big kid, uh, but he really lets him have it. And, uh, he basically tells them to, to not mess with Tao anymore, and uh, but they don't really they don't take it all that well. Yeah, surprisingly, gangs will escalate violence sometimes, especially when the old white man comes to their house, puts a gun in one of your faces, and says, "If I have to come back again, it's gonna get fucking ugly. Stay away from Tao, or I kill you, you fat fuck." So, again, yeah, he that's the, he probably could have seen that coming. Yeah, that's the thing. People see this as a dirty, hairy movie. Oh, Clint Eastwood pulls out the gun and makes everything right. No, it's the exact opposite. That's the whole opposite message that this movie portrays. He screws up here. Walt makes everything worse by escalating violence, and it's really going to go downhill. All right, so here we go, the end of the movie. So Tao is starting to come around. We have the one final barbecue at the Hmong house, and we learn that Tao has a job. He's doing well. He's doing well in school. He asked Yum Yum out. Clint, or Walt is amazed. He actually asked this girl out. And this is where Walt makes the ultimate uh, gregarious gift he's going to offer Tao. What does he offer Tao on his first date with Yum Yum? He offers Tao that he can take the Gran Torino. Yeah, let's talk about the significance of that in this movie. Because that's the whole heart of this movie, that... The only thing Walt has ever cared about is this Grand Torino car he's had for 40 years that he hand-built. And I don't think, I'd suspect, Walt's kids have never even driven that car. Nobody has ever been allowed to drive that car but him, I bet. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe he took the kids in them when they were kids, but uh, I mean, they probably they probably have never even ridden in it. Uh, it's you know pristine condition, doesn't look like it's ever been driven. Uh, he probably well, we never see him drive it in the movie, um, so it's uh it's hard to understate the significance of that in their relationship. Yeah, this is a big moment that on Tao's first date, Tao doesn't have a car. And Walt says, well, you're taking this beautiful girl, yum yum, out on a date, dinner and a movie. You can't take her on the bus. You drive my car. And Tao cannot believe Walt actually offered that car to somebody. It's such a huge moment. And it's really, I hate to say it, the last happy moment in this movie because it's all downhill from here. Okay, so here we go, the escalation. When Walt went to the gang's house and put a gun in their face, they were not going to take that sitting down. So later that night... It's drive-by time, and they're not going to shoot up Walt's house. They're going to shoot up Tao's house. Yeah, they know it probably won't, or there's a higher chance that it doesn't end well if they go straight for Walt's house. Uh, and, you know, they, they keep it within their community, and they go for Tao's house, which, you know, there's Tao, but there's also his grandmother, his mother, and his sister, um, although his sister's not there at the time. Uh, but they, I mean, they shoot the place up. It's It's a... You know, multiple fully automatic machine guns just unloading at the house, and uh, Tao gets grazed by a bullet. You know, somehow his his mother and grandmother escape it unscathed because they totally peppered that that place. Uh, and then they, you know, once they've kind of collected themselves, they realize that Sue wasn't actually there. Yeah, this is a really tough scene to watch. The gangbangers come, they shoot up Tao's house. They're just defenseless. It's just him and his mom and grandmother. And Walt runs over with his gun. He's like, what happened? And they're like, oh, the gangbangers shot up our house. And Walt is infuriated. But it's going to get even worse when we find out what happened to Sue, the one he has always liked the most. Because what happens to Sue, we find out in about half an hour. Yep, she comes back um, into the house. They're they're worried, sick about her, don't know where she is. Then she shows back up, and she's... Uh, all beaten, bloodied, bruised, and uh, it's you know seems apparent that she was probably raped, uh, and it's really just really difficult because you know you've grown to care a lot about this girl. She's been nothing but I mean just a ray of light, frankly, uh, and to see something horrible happen to her like that is just awful. It's terrible. This this is such an emotional movie for me to watch because it draws me in so much. But yeah, Sue has been attacked, and she is the nicest, sweetest person in this movie. The gang has, again, it's implied they raped her, assaulted her. And Walt, again, such an old crotchety man, old crotchety soul. But again, as we saw earlier in the movie, there's one thing he will not abide, and that is violence towards women. He cannot believe these gangbangers attacked one of their own, a girl, one of their cousins even, and they attacked her. And he is so furious that you can see the murder in his eyes. He is going to murder that gang tonight. Yeah, he wants nothing more than just pure vengeance. And it's almost scary to see how he reacts because, again, we know what he's capable of. Yeah, and of course, the first person that comes over is the priest. We have to remember there's this young priest who's kind of been looking after Walt the whole movie. And he's like, yeah, I heard about the drive-by. I came right over. And he knows Walt. He's like, do not go to that house and get vengeance tonight, Walt. And Walt just growls at him. And they have a really long conversation here that's very important to the movie. I have like five pages of notes just about this. But it's basically the gist of it is none of the Hmong families want to press charges against the gang because they all rally against each other. They will not 
cooperate with the police. The priest knows that Walt is going to go over there and exact vengeance because that's what he does. And, uh, and the priest basically says, you cannot hold on to this anger. This is not your battle. Like, I'm as pissed as you are, Walt, that they shot at that family. We have to resolve this diplomatically. We have to talk. You will never find peace by bringing up your demons and attacking those kids. And this is where Walt has the one quote where he says, I may never find peace, but Sue and Tao are never going to find peace either as long as that gang is around. So now we have a stalemate in who is going to do what to determine who gets peace. And this is one of the first scenes in which you can kind of tell that Walt's finally coming around to the priest. And he, he kind of – he takes – he fi at least finally takes what the priest tells him into account. Yeah, he does listen to the priest. The priest is trying to tell him, don't do anything rash. And and they finally share a beer and they talk about life and death and peace. And it's kind of a neat little moment. The priest has come to understand Walt because the priest – even admits, I understand you're angry. If I was you, I would want to kill those bastards too, but we can't do that. And he starts trying to ask Walt, what are you going to do? Don't do anything rash. And Walt just says, go home, kid. I'll think of something. And whatever it is I do, they won't stand a chance. And the priest is like, oh, Jesus Christ, Walt, this is crazy. Yeah, this is where it really, I mean, hit, this is where the movie hits the home stretch. Okay, so the whole rest of the movie, there's like 20 minutes left. It's just Walt's decision, what he's going to do, what will bring him peace, how he will solve this problem. Can he get over these demons, this rage that inspires him to want to kill these people that are hurting his friends? It's just a whole you know, turmoil in his head of what he needs to do about this. And it's complicated because this is where Tao starts telling him, we need to go kill them, violence, we need to do this. And Walt is kind of, I think, horrified that Tao is going to start turning to the dark side. This is a very much a uh, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith moment here. Yeah, but you can you can tell at the same time that Walt is not going to have that. He does not want that to happen. He's going to do what he can to protect Tao. Yeah. So that is the ultimate message of this movie: that Walt has been through hell and back in his lifetime, and he will not let Tao do this. And he kind of tells Tao, "I know you want to kill, but I won't let you. You don't know what it's like. Don't cross that line like I did." And Tao's like, we got to do it. That's what men would do. We'd fight. We'd kill them. And Walt will not let him go down that path. So it's a big convoluted plan here to basically trick Tao and lock him in a basement so Tao can't do anything. Yeah, and Tao's obviously very upset at this because he wants a part of the vengeance. He's he's just as mad as Walt is. But, uh, again, Walt is, I mean, taking him on as a son, and he's not going to let anything bad happen to him. Yeah. Walt cannot impart many messages to people. He has never been a good teacher. He has never been a good father. But he does know one thing. You don't want to kill people if you don't have to. And this is where I think he explains to Tao the whole thing that he shot these kids in Korea, like 13 kids, these unarmed prisoners, and it's haunted him ever since. So Walt is definitely a man who has lived through some shit, and he is determined not to let Tao go through that again. And this is where we basically see... Walt preparing for his funeral, and it's very sad when you know the ending, when you actually see the significance of what he's doing here these last couple scenes. Yeah, it's a really neat montage and pretty powerful. It starts with um, – I can't remember what happens first, but he goes uh, and gets a straight shave at his barber. Uh, he goes and gets a fitted suit. Um, then, you know, most importantly, he, uh, he ends up at the church with the priest. Yeah, for the first time all movie, he goes to confession. 
And the, I love the scene. This is kind of an unintentionally funny, maybe intentionally funny scene where <laughs> Walt shows up. Now, Walt is prepared to die tonight. He's going to go to the gang house. There's going to be a Dirty Harry showdown. He's going to be dead. So he comes to the priest to confess, and the priest sees him, and Walt's like, I want to confess. And the priest is like, oh, Jesus, what have you done already? <laughs> yeah, it's it's hilarious. The priest just knows, like, something's up and there's nothing he can do. But he's trying to do it again, but, I mean, I I, I think the priests are obligated to take confession, so he, he's just got to believe him. <laughs> yeah, the priest is like, all right, give me your sins. And he assumes Walt has all these horrible sins, and Walt is like, well, I kissed another woman once. I didn't pay taxes on a boat. I wasn't close to my sons. That's it. And the priest is like, wait, that's it? Those are all your sins? He's like, yeah, I'm good. Those are the only things I've ever done. And so the, the priest is like, all right, well, I absolve you. You're clean of your sins. And then the whole thing's over, and they're walking out of the confession. And now the priest is like, all right, now tell me what you're going to do now that you're clean of your sins. I know you're doing something. And Walt's like, oh, don't worry. I'm fine. And so the priest is like, okay, well, I guess you can go in peace then. Go in peace, Walt. And Walt is like, oh, I am at peace. He's made his decision. He knows what's going to happen now. Yeah, and it's a it's an ending that I think he is very – I mean he is at peace with it. He's he's made his decision and he's – you know, if there's a way he wanted to go out, this is, this is fitting for him. And it's very sweet, and that's the one thing I want to get across about how powerful this ending is. If you've never seen this movie before, it's not the ending you think it is. He's not going to go in there like Dirty Harry and blow everybody away because he can't. It, we're past that. That era of Dirty Harry doesn't work anymore. He's a sad, old, pathetic man with no skills. So there's only one thing he can do tonight, and he knows this. And the movie's smart enough not to tip their hands until it happens. Yep, he uh, he finishes up at the church, and uh, he's got Tao locked in the basement, and he's all ready to go through with the plan. So he rolls on over to the gang's house, which... Uh, you know, just a quick aside, how the heck did he find out where they lived? <laughs> well, there's one part early in the movie where he's kind of stalking them. Do you remember? He's following them around because he hates them. So I think that's where he, so yeah, he's, he's kind of doing some, uh, some recon work earlier in the movie. Yeah. So, I mean, again, fully premeditated. I mean, he, he knew exactly what he was getting into. Yeah. So Walt has said all his goodbyes. He's got his suit. He tips his barber for the only time ever. The barber's like, what the hell? So Walt has said his goodbyes. He's made his peace. He's going to make penance with God and uh, do the right thing. So he, uh, oh, I forgot about this. This is the one that wrecks me. He gives his dog away. He knows he's going to die, so he gives the dog to the to the grandmother next door who hates him. Yeah, of course, and the obligatory uh, sad dog whine right there at the very end when he walks away. But, uh, I mean, you, you feel for him. He's just looking out for his dog. He knows he's going to be dead tonight. He's leaving. So, uh, yeah, here comes the final scene again. One of the most powerful endings I could think of any movie from this era where uh, he, uh, the priest is waiting at the gang house. The priest is there with the cops. He knows Walt is going to come out here, guns ablazing later tonight, but the cops won't stay there because they don't know when it's going to happen. So they clear out. The cops can't stay there all night. The priest leaves, and here comes the big showdown as Walt just shows up at the house and basically calls everyone to come out. Yeah. There's a funny little scene too, where uh, the, the cops like drag the priest away. Cause the priest, I guess been stationed there all day, just trying to prevent something bad from happening. And the cops are like, it's kind of pissed at him. So they literally drag, like throw him into the police car and drive him away <laughs> just to get him away from what they presume is a dangerous situation. I mean, I can only assume that they've kind of given up on the neighborhood too. And they're just going to move on. Cause they have, 
their time's better spent somewhere else. There's nothing they, I mean, just getting involved in a gunfight isn't going to help anything. But that's a that's a funny little scene right before we get to the to the climax. The priest knows it's coming, but he doesn't know exactly what's coming in. Everybody is off about 90 degrees with what Walt's plan actually is. And it's so, I just love the way it's presented. Okay, so Walt shows up at the gangbanger house. This is going to be the final showdown, his big, dirty, hairy moment. And this is what the audience would have been expecting at the time. Clint Eastwood pulls out the guns and just blasts them all away. Yep, the house is gone. There's uh, triumphant American music plays in the background, and... uh... Yeah, they beat the gang and right off into the sunset. That's right. Big USA chant. It's a big, wonderful moment. No, that is not what happens. So Walt gets to the front yard. The gangbangers see him. They come out, and there's six or seven of them. There's a lot of them, and they have guns pointed at him because they know shit's going to go down tonight because he's going to retaliate. And there's there's uh it's important to note here there's a a little musical motif that shows up a few times in the movie when uh when walt is making some sort of stand uh typically with a gun uh so you kind of expect him to to show up here with a gun uh and so there's this little like drum military american military drum beat that kind of is playing in the background here and it's just a, a neat little recurring music theme yeah they're totally setting you up for the ending which i love Okay, so, yeah, Walt is on the lawn, and he starts taunting all these gangbangers, like, uh, how dare you rape one of your own, you fucking cowards? You know, you, you stay away from Tao. He's too good for you. He has vision in this world. He's going somewhere. You guys are little pricks, you fucking swamp rats. He's just kind of cursing them out. And all the neighbors in the yard, this is important, all the neighbors in the neighborhood start coming out, and they watch this. So there's hundreds of witnesses to what is about to happen. That's very important. Yeah, the whole neighborhood, They, you can kind of see them walking out on their balconies, onto their porches. Even some kids are out there watching. I mean, not the best parenting there, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of witnesses. Okay, here we go, and I really hope you've seen this one. We're about to spoil one of the greatest movie endings of this era. Walt reaches into his pocket. Now, we've seen this move before. We saw this earlier with the Black Gang, that he reaches into a pocket for the first time, and he gets everyone all agitated. They start clicking their guns. And he pulls out uh, his finger gun. He's got like a little finger gun. And he's like, bang, bang, like he's pretending to shoot them. And there everyone's getting all tense. He's like, what's the matter, boys? You little tense? And now he reaches into his pocket a second time. And this earlier in the movie you see is where the gun comes out. So they're setting you up. But the gun does not come out the second time. What comes out the second time, Jack? His cigarette lighter. His cigarette lighter. He pulls out the cigarette lighter. The gang bangers all think it's a gun. And they just fucking unload on him. I, I mean, I have seen very few scenes in movies where someone takes more bullets than Clint Eastwood takes right here. Yeah, they really draw it out, too. I mean, they there's shots of the body just, like, writhing as it's being peppered with countless bullets. It's pretty, pretty intense. It is. It's terrible. And although right before he – now, again, Walt is committing suicide. He is killing himself so that this gang will go to jail. They will be arrested. He doesn't have a gun on him. This is an unarmed, open assault murder. They will all go to jail. He is killing himself to save Sue and Tao, so they will never be tormented by this gang again. And he knows it. And right before he's about to get shot, you see him under his breath say, Hail Mary, full of grace. Like, he is finally at peace. He has made peace. He's about to die on his terms. And he gets wasted. But, you know, as as horrible as it is to watch and as, as sad as it really is, it's, again, the ending that he would have wanted and uh it's 
it's uplifting in a way. Yeah, it really is. It's very inspiring because he was dying anyway. He had no purpose in the world. He had no peace. No one loved him. He had no value to anybody. But he goes out on his terms, actually a hero. And this is very important because earlier in the movie, he says, they gave me a medal in Korea. I killed 13 innocent kids. They gave me a goddamn medal. I am not a hero. This is the first time in his life he actually is a hero. And it's so wrapped up with, instead of killing Asians in Korea, it's saving this Asian family that he's grown to love. There's so many little things wrapped up here in redemption and peace and growth. It's just, the more you think about it, I just love this ending more and more. Yeah, and I think it really does. I, I don't know how you can watch this and come away with like the white savior mentality. Because first of all, he dies. And second of all, it's it's all done together in tandem like they 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 both he and his his new Hmong friends they grew together Mm -hmm. and it's um you know he 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 did things for them they did they did a lot for him and it's you know it's a it's a good guy wins in the end movie but it's it's bittersweet and it's it's really just powerful it's hard to hard to put it into words really it's bittersweet but it's appropriate and that's what the one one thing I, i love about this movie i'm just thinking about that that's how this movie is supposed to end. It just wouldn't work any other way. It, yeah, I agree. It, it absolutely wouldn't. It, it loses all kind of power without that that kind of punctuation mark. Yeah, and the Mungs have saved him. The priest has saved him. Everyone is saving everybody in this movie. They all gain a little bigger understanding of life as it goes along, and it just culminates with Walt has to die to everybody to see how life and death works and what the important values in life are. So... I mean, you could superficially call it a white savior movie. I just think that's stupid. I just think that's such a shallow reading of this movie. It drives me insane. I agree. You just miss out on so much if you try and boil it down to that. It's 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 silly and irresponsible, and you should feel bad. <laughs> You're a bad person. It's just stupid. Sorry. I'm calling out all of Letterboxd and uh, <laughs> Internet Movie Database and Rotten Tomatoes, that there's so many stupid takes on this movie. So here comes, you know, uh, Tao shows up and Sue shows up and they finally get here and they realize that Walt is dead. Walt has been blown away by the gangbangers and and Tao is is panicked. He's like, oh, my God, Walt. No, not Walt. Like Walt's my father figure. But there's very I love this sympathetic, the one sympathetic Asian cop who none of the other cops will let Tao anywhere near the crime scene because he's all frantic. But the one Asian cop actually speaks to him in his own language and says, no, look what happened here. Your friend Walt had no gun on him. I know you thought he came here to blow them away. He was just talking to them. They shot him. This is 100% premeditated, unarmed murder. Those guys are going to be taken away for a long time. So Tao realizes in his head what Walt did for him, that Walt just saved him from the gang. And the priest is there too. The priest kind of realizes this, that Walt sacrificed himself. And it's just such a poignant moment that they all kind of realize Walt never had any intention of killing anybody. He was coming here to die the entire time. This is a... This is a Christ story, honestly, a Jesus Christ motif. <laughs> yep, truly the white savior. Uh, <laughs> but it's um, no, it's that's a it's a good little shibboleth there at the end with the um, with the cop kind of giving them the information, and you come to the realization that the the plan worked, and uh, all the puzzle pieces really fit together, and everyone's at everyone has found some semblance of peace. Yeah, and Walt, as Walt was, uh, you know. Uh, what would be the right word? 
as Walt was uh, lecturing Tao as they were leading up to what to do in these final scenes of the movie, Walt was saying, you have to think about this. Do this smart. Do not respond rashly or you will make a mistake. So Walt has thought through every eventuality what was going to happen, and it all works out perfectly. So it's just it's such a little uh, a little argument for nonviolence in the world that nonviolence will actually get you further than violence. It's, just, it's, it's kind of a, just a neat little ending. It is, yeah. And then the 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 kind of capstone uh, epilogue parts are also uh, a great highlight as well. I think un- unnecessary, but they. Uh, I think it it it's helpful to have that in there just as a a good send off. Yeah, you need a release valve. That that death of Walt is so powerful and so emotional. You need a little laugh at the end of the movie to kind of drive it home to save the audience a little bit. So there is a little stinger here where it's Walt's funeral. And he's dying now. And all of Walt's crappy family is there that he hates. And one half of the funeral is all Walt's family. And the other half is all these Hmong families in like their traditional native garb. They'd go for funerals like big hats and stuff. And it's this funny scene of all these, you know, spoiled, rotten Walt kids looking over at these Hmong saying, why are these weird savages at our funeral? And all the Hmong people looking over like, why is Walt's shitty family here? Where is his family? So I just think that's kind of funny that they've invaded the funeral and they are more his family than his actual family was. Yeah, it's a funny juxtaposition. And then we get the will reading, which is fantastic. A fantastic ending to this movie. Oh, yeah, it's just it's perfect. Uh, you get to see, again, good guys win and the bad guys get just absolutely crushed. <laughs> and it's glorious. Yeah, so here's the real bad guys in this movie. Walt's family that has been mooching off him and disrespecting him and trying to get his house and trying to get his car for their entire lives. And we get the will reading, and we learn that Walt has left his house, not to his kids, but to the church, because his wife Dorothy would have wanted that. And his kids are pissed. They wanted that house. They're mad. But here comes the next part. The one last item in their collection, in Walt's collection, the 1972 Grand Torino, his ultimate possession, who, of course, Walt's granddaughter thinks it's going to her because she's been asking for it. But that's not what it's going to happen, is it? Oh, no. Uh, Of course, he, uh, with a great addendum, leaves the Grand Torino to the the only person who it really could have been left to, and that's Tao. Tao. The one boy who tried to steal the car earlier in the movie, he actually earns the car. Walt leaves it to Tao at the end. The rest of the family, their heads just whip around. How did this little Hmong kid who lives next door get Grandpa Walt's beloved Gran Torino? And <laughs> should I actually quote the will reading? Do you think I'm brave enough to do that? I think you should because it's hilarious. <laughs> so the lawyer is reading the will reading that uh, Walt left. And the lawyer even says... Uh, please forgive the language. This is just how he wrote it. <laughs> so Tao is just kind of laughing because he knows, oh, here we go. Walt's going to blast everyone in his will. And the la- the exact <laughs> instructions from Walt are, as to my beloved Gran Torino, I leave it to my friend Tao. As long as you don't chop top the roof like one of those beaners. <laughs> don't paint any flames on it like some white trash hillbilly. And don't put a big gay spoiler on the rear end like you see on the, all, all the other Zipperhead's cars. It just looks like hell. If you can refrain from doing any of that, it's yours. Oh, man. <laughs> it's so perfect to what Walt would have said. And again, I know it's offensive language, but that's what the character would have said. That's what I love about this movie. It does not back off from presenting Walt with all his warts. 
Yeah, it's, uh, again, perfect capstone here. Uh, and, you know, ends off on a little touch of humor to give you a little bit of an uplift after the that tense past few minutes with the with the climax scene. But uh, it's it's great. Yeah. And the end of the movie is just uh, Tao driving down by, uh, I think that might be Lake Michigan. I'm not entirely sure. I would assume that's been Detroit, Lake Michigan. And Tao is just driving the Grand Torino, and he's got Clint's dog next to him, which... I thought it was a mistake. I thought Yum Yum should have been in the car, but the dog, I guess, works too. But I, I read somewhere, the only person who's ever shown driving the Gran Torino in the movie is Tao, and this is the scene. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a really neat ending scene, and I'm curious what the critical reception is on the little song that uh, <laughs> Clint Eastwood sings that goes along with the, with the closing, with the, the first few uh, minutes of the closing credits. I personally think it's a touching little song uh that he just sings acapella and it's uh i don't really read much into the lyrics but it's it's kind of nice to hear it sung in his gravelly old voice uh for some reason it uh it, it works for me i would suspect you're one of the only people who has ever said that sentence i like hearing clint sing in his gravelly voice most likely <laughs> But I have that in my notes, too. I always forget. We get to the end of the movie, and Tao is driving around Lake Michigan. He, he's going to be okay. He's in his Grand Torino. He's learned all these life skills. He's got a job. He's got some purpose. And then you start hearing Clint Eastwood singing. It's like, get off my lawn. I'm like, what the fuck is that? Like, I just wrote my notes. Oh, yeah, Clint Eastwood sings at the end. Ew. Yeah, it's it's definitely weird. Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna deny that, but I, I personally think it works. But I can I can see why other people might be put <laughs> off by it because it's a little weird. It's like some song about a Gran Torino that he just like wrote on the back of a napkin somewhere. <laughs> I don't know, but it's it's funny. But I I personally think it works. Okay, I mean I've I've seen other arguments. Some people like that song, some don't. I I think it's a very jarring ending. But again, this movie has bought up so much goodwill with me. I don't really care, and it's just. One of those movies I've always been really high on, but it's also one I can't watch all that much because I'm I don't know if people get this from from listening to staff picks. I'm I'm more sensitive than most guys. I'm very sensitive to movies and themes and emotion and stuff in movies. This movie's a little too powerful for me. I can't watch it that much because it kind of wrecks me for a little bit. So it's one of these that I have the like absolute highest recommendation for, but it's not one I really say is an enjoyable watch all the time. It's a little too powerful for me. Yeah, it, it's really heavy, and I, I think it lingers with you for a while after you watch it, um, especially, you know, with today's race-conscious environment. It's it's obviously set in a different era, but it's, it, it you know, its themes are really universal, just always striving for growth and, and uh, you know, seeking peace is, is just important very universal themes yeah and you're saying that times are different now i mean they are and they aren't like the whole premise of the world and you know society and history in general is that things change things will change whether you like it or not and that's kind of the you know different cultures and worlds crashing into each other like walt doesn't like that the mongs are here the mongs aren't real thrilled that walt's still sticking around here but this is just the reality of the way the world works and people that obviously are going to struggle against it. That's just what humans do. Humans, by definition, tend to want what they have and don't like change. But the ones that can adapt to change are the ones that tend to be the happiest because that's just how society progresses. So 
like there's so many messages and themes going around this movie. It's almost silly to try to delve into all of them because it's it's so much deeper than your average movie. It is, and I think people don't. It, it, I think it should get more recognition for it, or at least be remembered a bit um, further down the road. I, I do remember it being very uh, critically acclaimed, or or at least very prominent uh, when it did come out 13 years ago. But uh, it would be a good one for more people to revisit. I think. Yeah, and I know it got some Oscar talk at the time. I don't think it ever got any awards or nominations, but I could see why people talked about it. this is the type of movie that gets Oscar nominations. I think maybe it was a little too controversial with some of its uh, casual racism, maybe a little made people a little uncomfortable. But again, it's so real. And this is the type of movie, like even though I said some of the discourse is really annoying on it, and I think people have really stupid takes on this movie, it's still to this day, you look on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, it's still like 81% favorable. It's still really widely regarded. It's just not a movie that's very comfortable to talk about on stuff like social media. And I think that really... Social media is a detriment to movies like this because it's this movie requires a nuanced discussion and social media cannot do that really. Yeah, and it's I mean it's something you need to come into with an open mind and take it for what it is because it's I mean they, these aren't people that uh, most people typically deal with in day to day life so it it almost is they they may come off as caricatures but they're again as we talked about they're. It needs to be realistic, and, and these are people that if they don't exist, then they, they once did. And, uh, it's you know it, it's important to see that and see um, how people grow and change. Because if you if you want to actually affect change, then you're going to need to reach them somehow. Uh, so, I mean, why not pay attention? Yeah, and to me, there's not a false note in this movie. Like everything feels exactly the way it should. This feels exactly like the way real life would play out. And then with the added bonus of, I really fucking want some Hmong food right now. It looks so good. It really did. Oh, man. Uh, that, like, those egg rolls and the there was, like, some, some like, glazed duck or chicken-looking thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jealous. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, that's our coverage of Gran Torino, which, again, is a very difficult movie to talk about, but absolutely one of my highest recommendations on staff picks. It's kind of a movie from a lost era. Again, with social media, you have a hard time where a movie like this could thrive because it really would inflame people. And it, again, I hate to say, keep saying this, but the stupidest voices are usually the loudest, loudest voices on social media. And I hate that. And this is the type of movie that really doesn't benefit from that. So I'd really recommend people go out and watch it. If you've never seen it or watch it again, it's one that I own. I never, ever regret watching. It's so good. And it's just, it, again, among the highest recommendations I've ever done on staff picks. Yeah. I, wholeheartedly agree and i think i mean this podcast is about getting movies that need more love more love and uh, i hope that uh we can we can do that tonight mm -hmm. hopefully although one last thing i don't know if this movie would be quite as powerful if it was not clint eastwood who is such a beloved person who had directed it and made it and everything like i'm thinking if this movie came from like kevin spacey it's a whole different reaction <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, I, uh, I I agree with that. I think it it's a role that only works for him. And I mean, frankly, I don't think people would take anyone else seriously in, mm -hmm. in a role like that. I mean, who else gets all those racial slur passes? I mean, Tarantino, that's about it. Um, so uh, it's yeah, it, it works 
I mean, you can't just throw any actor in there. Uh, I think Clint, Clint Eastwood is is a critical part of it, just because of who he is and the stature that he has, and the importance of the the importance that his figure is in in American culture. Yeah, a hundred percent right. And again, Jack and I don't even know all his movies all that well, but if you read all the contemporary reviews when this movie came out, they all say the same thing. This movie works as well as it does because you know the legacy of Clint Eastwood. If you know he's the man with no name, you know he's the hero of every Western, the toughest guy who ever lived, Dirty Harry. If you know all that stuff, this movie is so interesting to watch him deconstruct that and just take apart that image. So it's just there's a lot going on in this movie that I just I think really it really needs to be reconsidered and people just need to talk about it more. And that's my last word on the subject. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, completely agree and uh, hope everyone takes the time to to not only watch this movie and uh but also to really think about it yep and i'm just for you personally jack if you've never seen another clint eastwood movie the one that is so similar to this about 15 years early is unforgiven very similar tough old guy used to be the toughest guy now he's a sad broken old man trying to still live up to his old image and it just doesn't work. He's sad, and it just it's all about redemption and you know, outliving your past and finding peace again. So if you like this one, watch Unforgiven. It's really similar. Yeah, I know. I definitely need to get around to watching more of his stuff, so I'll put that towards the top of my list. Okay. Well, again, thank you guys for listening. This was a really uh, important episode for me to do. I probably may go over two hours. I try not to do that on Staff Picks, but this is one I thought needed such – discourse and such delving into the themes that we might have gone a little long so i appreciate if you stuck with us and again thank you for listening again my name is mario lanza this is staff picks if you need to reach me you can reach me at staff picks podcast at gmail.com or on twitter at mario j lanza and until next time i'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love hopefully that are a little less controversial than this one and in the meantime i'll be feasting on mung food because it looks delicious i'll talk to you guys later bye You're wrong, Egg Roll. I know exactly what I'm talking about. You're letting Click Clack Ding Dong and Charlie Chan just walk out with Miss What's-Her-Face. And you know why? Because you're a big fat pussy.